This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7 Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. Podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. One of the final times you're ever going to hear me say that. This is the 166th episode of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat. I am your host, Blake Howard, and this is the first part, a behemoth first part of the double final episode featuring none other than Michael Mann. But before we get to the man himself, in part two tomorrow, if you're listening to this on either the 5th or the 4th July, wherever you are in the world, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. This behemoth episode has four phenomenal guests. We pick slash bring on a list. We have a fan, and we have a fan of the show. And uh, it is... Probably the film uh, and the genesis of the hierarchy Michael Mann to orchestrate a point take in packs, put a love the podcast so much. And I mean I obviously love heat so much and I um think about it all the time. And obviously, like so many other filmmakers, I'm hugely influenced by it. Um and uh, when you make a LA crime movie, you it, it's a, it's a colossus that you you know you have to reckon with, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, and and specifically an LA movie that really we, the LA in our movie Destroyer is a very different, uh, some cases different LA, and in some cases similar, but both of them really endeavor to do a, the real Los Angeles in a, or one real Los Angeles, and it's yes. one of the most powerful things about it. Yeah, I, 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 that is the the biggest connection is that if you tell people to watch Heat or Destroyer, but don't tell them that it's set in LA, they almost don't. They almost wouldn't associate it until you know, particularly in Heat, until like a helicopter shot kind of in the middle of the film, or maybe if you recognize downtown through the car park, like you're not really, um, you're not you're not really going to feel like it's the LA you've seen in all those other movies. And much like Destroyer, Destroyer feels like it's again feels like it's on the fringes. I think you uh-huh. guys, I think you and, and your part, writing partner, Matt and Freddie, and obviously, you know, wonderful director, Karen Kusama, your partner, I feel like, I feel like you guys get what Heat gets, which I feel like LA and Heat and Destroyer is like the hell mouth. And, and, yeah. you got, and, and, you, and your, your lead character, and particularly the characters in this movie, it's like, they sort of keep getting drawn back into this gyre and they can't do anything to escape it. And just when, as we've just seen in the, we're about to talk about a minute, just in the, as they feel like they're escaped, you know, they're going to escape, whether it's escaping to freedom, to imaginary fantasy land, New Zealand, or whether it's escaping, um, you know, it's, it's escaping the lore of it, um, uh, with Pacino, his life's in LA is over. Essentially he's lost his greatest catch. Uh, we or so we think for a little bit, and he's like, nah, he's still going to be standing there having to stalk this, the streets of this Hellmouth, the only one that sort of hunts and gathers in there. But yeah, that's what I feel like with both movies a lot. I feel like you guys you guys get it. And there's a few, there's a, the other great LA crime movies all get that too. 
Well, I think that it's in a, in a crime crime movies, but specifically these crime movies. Like what I think about when you say that is that they really, in the case of L.A. for for what we strove for for our movie and what it's a combination of the real a real place, but yes. it's also a mythologized place yes. and a myth and and actually a mythological place. Like the the struggles and the the kind of um, the 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 the, the uh, emotional and and kind of um, philosophical landscape is a very fraught one. Yes. Uh, so that idea of you know, and and it's funny, like like we do here when we talk about Destroyer a lot about how um, hellish the landscape is, and of course we're like home, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's home. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's like the detail and something again that Heat is so. Um, inspiring in the case of it and that what michael mann does with i think all of his films is the attention to detail and the intent and the need to capture a reality you know not the reality but a reality of a place and i remember the first time i saw heat as an angelino knowing exactly where everything was happening and 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 it making sense and being contiguous and that's exactly what the minute we got our location manager on in destroyer we said the same we said we we said we need the same. We need to know people who live in L.A. The distances have to feel right, and yes. it has to like a really long time to drive from down by the airport up to Glassell Park. Yes, in the <laughs> afternoon, and you need to feel it. You know, like well, well, like that's like to 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 call back to a much earlier episode. It's like people always talk about the uh, the great Vincent Hanna, Albert Torina. You know, don't waste my motherfucking time. Like that, that is like the, you know, you know, give me all you got, like that scene. And, uh, Garth Franklin, who's the editor of Dark Horizons, he was on the show and he goes, that, that place is about an hour and a half south of downtown. Like that, that, that dilapidated sort of sulfur, hills of sulfur and, you know, the little, you know, whatever that dog fighting zone was in the chop shop that they developed. And so he's like, if Vincent, and uh, and Drucker, Michael T. Williamson, I've been on the road all morning. They've driven an hour and a half out of their way to this chump yeah. who hasn't called him back. And this is one of his major guys. So no wonder he starts pissed off. And I sort exactly. of like, I'm like, I, you know, that, that geography element is like, especially, you know, if you have to drive into downtown and you're a local, that's all right. But if you're driving like an hour south to just get this guy and he doesn't give you anything, of course Vincent's going to be angry. It sort of makes yeah. sense with the emotions of what's happening. That's right. That's the emotional reality of his of his journey. Yeah. Well, look, let's dive into it. Um, yeah. The, sure. uh, I'll, if anyone has listened to episode 165 so far, um, you would know that I... Uh, 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 was unexpectedly a little bit emotional, and thank you to Travis uh, Woods, the incredible writer for uh, Bert, uh, for um, Brightwall Dark Room, um, who sort of jumped in and saved me uh, because I w- I was actually coming to terms with the gravity of the moment that we're about to watch, which is that mm-hmm. this is my favorite moment of this film, and it has been a two year project to get to this moment, and I suddenly was having to come to grips, like Vincent Hanna is coming to grips that I'm slaying my Neil McCauley. My greatest foe is this movie in this in this minute-by-minute podcast and what am I meant to do? So, Phil, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for watching along with me. Now, we're going to watch along together and then I'm going to unleash Phil on this minute for us to, okay. to talk about. 
I'm moved again, as always. Um, and the first thing that I think about, which is so interesting, because it, to me it's the heart of this movie, is that really extreme intimacy in the on a canvas that's so large and is and is like I was saying, it's 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 uh, legend and it's myth and it's yeah. Um, yeah. it's like. Uh, the primal stories and, and, and yet in the detail throughout the movie and then really here being so intimate with human beings and kind of taking these human beings back and forth between the mythical and the absolutely real, you know, and, um, and just, and I was also struck about thinking about how, you know, how, um, powerful it is to see someone die on a movie screen you know and how meaningful I mean, and 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 what that moment means and what that journey means and then um and then in this ta- case, taking the mythical out of it like just evaporating that it's a person who's person just slipping who's just away slipping away yeah no exactly a, you know a human being it's a spirit of the individual and you know to have anyone uh be your company at that moment like the profound the profundity that that is that whoever is with you at that moment is um that's irreplaceable and and it's in this case utterly appropriate who is with him at that moment um and the fact that both of them are people who utterly struggle with intimacy it's not something that they're either of them is comfortable with that's you know again it's another piece of what makes it so so moving um and and both of them for for this entire this movie entire, the the most intimate scene of the film has been them having a conversation the most candid moment and i think even michael mann himself talks about this moment there is no two more people alike in the universe than these right. two guys. Right. And so when I see Al Pacino giving, like I know a lot of people when you map out his career at this point are like, oh, he's gone. He's gone. He's the he's Pacino. He's gone off the reservation. He's, he's, you know, scent of a woman, devil's advocate. Like he doesn't, he, he's not the, he's not the Michael Corleone that we once knew. And I'm like, just go and watch his face in the first yeah. 10 seconds of this minute. You can't tell me that this guy is not one of the greatest living actors ever. In it's the- a great, yeah. It's so, so great that you say that because the, like you're watching a character experience the profound. Yes. Right. And, and, and it completely like, that's a pretty tall order and you feel that. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know, uh, you, you as the writer. Okay, so just the description of the scene is you experiencing the profound. the profound. Can you go and do that? Can you just give me some of that, and we'll see how that looks. Give me, give me a little more ineffable. We're almost there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that just get it, it. Just you know, and he's at the fulcrum of the universe. He just gets it, and he's just. It's a. It's a. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just a to- it's a torrent of emotion. He he's it's just all flowing through. And like you said, whether whether you've 
whether you've chosen to be in that spot, I suppose, you know, for people who are listening, if you have experienced death, it is profound because you're, in, you know, in, intrinsically connected to that person, that moment for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not, that you were there, you were there at that moment. And I think that for Vincent, he's always known that they were going to end up in some collision. But he, mm-hmm. this, what's so wonderful is that in the true, like, cops and robbers, white hat, black hat, entire history of gangster movies, noir, cowboy movies, westerns, you know, it's, we know the good guy is probably going to be the one that's standing there. And I think what's so wonderful about Vincent Hanna and Al Pacino's performance is that these the, the seconds that begin this minute finally ask, does he want to be? Uh-huh. Yeah. And that just what that is just what gets me every time. Yeah. Every single moment. And- well, that's the idea of, yeah, being where you're supposed I mean, there's also such an idea in in Heat, and I think in a lot of Michael Mann's work, to my opinion, that is is about, you know, people being determined by their nature or people being determined by forces. They struggle to not be determined by them. They struggle to make choices and be where they want to be and are brought to places that they have to be. And I think, in a way, that's what this is. Like, he's, he's brought to the place that he has to be. You know, both of them are where they have to be. In yes. that moment, that's what makes it both so intimate and and so profound. And I also love that this moment when talking about the profundity of it, I think necessarily and so um, as an Angelino, it, it really resonates of the fact that it takes place in this liminal space of around LAX. Yes, you know, at the last moments of the movie, take place in an airport hotel. And these these kind of spaces that are very familiar to Angelinos as this weird transition zone that does have its own strange character. And that, you know, that sort of wilderness, you know, like I realized that that um, it's it's, you know, he's pursuing Neil across a wilderness. Yes. At the end. And And again, to go back to that stuff that really moves me, that like mythological at the at that moment there become, you know, it becomes a story that's thousands of years old. It's these two creatures, one of which is trying to get away and one of which is pursuing and only one of them is going to survive. That's, um, I don't know, there's something about the LAX-ness of the whole ending that really <laughs> so, so perfect. And you're right about it being a colossus, you know, when you get back to that element, uh, the elemental nature of it and it just strips it back. You know, the thing I'd, I'd love to ask you as a writer is that man is adamant that to unlock heat, he found this moment. And I just wonder, it's, it's a sort of hard thing to grapple with. And, you know, as a person who occasionally writes, you know, reviews and features and things like that, I, it's been so rare that I've ever thought of the final line that then unlocked how, how I was going to tackle that piece or tackle that piece of work. So, you know, he's adamant that he, he found this moment in his head and he's like, this is everything has to be reverse engineered to this. So I guess mm. when I, what I'm starting to come to appreciate, even just hearing you talk about it is like, there's so, there's such a way to approach the, the, the reality, his man reality of LA and the authenticity, but there's also this undercurrent of like why we even view stories, you know, why, uh-huh. why we, why, why stories are so, uh, 
essential to the human experience. It's just like, but it's that awareness sometimes is like, there's such an artificiality about producing stacks of content, but then sometimes movies just get it. They're like, this is, and I think, you know, to your credit and, and your partner, Matt, 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 Freddie and Karen, that's one of those things that is elemental about the invitation as well. It's like there's something about going to a dinner party you really don't want to be at with a whole bunch of people who you don't really want to see and then things happening <laughs> that you don't want to happen. It's like all the things that are in your gut of like this is an essential experience of like modern life and we're in this space and in this zone and that's like it rings true and like that airport space, that's not – it feels so un-LA. It's the, yeah, it's the least right. LA. It's maybe yeah. the most LA experience for me as an outsider. It's like, oh, I have to go through the god awful LAX. Maybe I'd rather be chased by Vincent Hanna than go through customs. You know, um, <laughs> the, the LA Hilton is not my first hotel of choice. It's you know, it's not, it's not some beautiful opulent hotel where there's you know resplendent with stars. It's just the messy essential place that you stay because you've got to take a flight the next day. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's um, oh no, I think that idea of, I mean. You know, um, when we try to create something or we write, I think we often do know what the ending is and do know where we're we're going. And I think and, and need to and need to have the sense of where that that transition because that transition out of your dream world back into the real world. And 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 in in case of both of our recent movies, it's about trans. You know. A, a, a life and death transition. In one case, it's about a transition of a whole world to a, a understanding of, of a, a very changed, uh, a changed situation. Um, but like that idea of, of, um, finding the emotion, I guess what I really identify when you're saying is trying for us, what's so important and what is so obviously important in Michael Mann's world is finding that those human things to hold on to and those, um, relationships, those, um, those, those connections between people and, and, and allowing them to breathe within a framework that becomes, you know, the movies that becomes big enough, that becomes kind of, um, philosophically, hopefully intriguing enough that, you know, but it's about keeping hold of those little, and also very big things inside of people and, 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 and those relationships and honoring every relationship. If you can in the movie, another thing that we strive to do always in that is so, you know, such a large part of heat is every single one of these characters down through, through this massive cast feels like a human being who has their own trajectory, their own desires, their own weaknesses and strengths and their own relationships that matter to them. Um, and that's what you're, that's what you're seeing on screen. I just, I'm also struck by, um, the, that the entire fallout of this movie, like right from the end of the heist, where just everything is just falling to pieces. Van yeah. Dance going down. Chris is injured. Michael's killed. Um, poor, poor Don Breeden and Lillian has to watch up on the screen that he's just, done this heist is as we're seeing all these like everyone's fragmenting and falling apart and death and all those sorts of things are happening um the these guys are together right um these guys these guys are getting the chance to have that moment 
Because even Charlene's like, I'm cutting you loose. Right. You know, the hand gestures, I'm cutting you loose. Don't come near me. Don't do anything. And these guys get to have that. Yeah. That well, moment, that, 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 that grasp they get to have. Oh, and, and also, and it is so meaningful because they do, um, to different degrees of emotional connection. Cause it's just what yeah. these guys are capable of. And I mean, certainly a lot of the movies about people who cannot make these emotional connections, even though there are people who want to, who offer an avenue to that and, and offer <laughs> yes. actually a pretty, not just a kind of surface level, like an, a real, you feel the real opportunity for some growth and from connection. And, you know, especially in the case of Neil, he loves his crew. He loves all of those guys and he loves and obviously he yearns so much for family and he's made that and obviously that dinner scene which is such a signature part of the movie um he's about it that's the best he can get and it's pretty good but it's missing something and whereas vincent is very you know i i think he he doesn't have that same relationship with anybody that surrounds him um and so they're both coming from different groups with different stakes. But as you say, they, they're the ones who have to end up together because ultimately, I mean, as the, the movie makes it very literal, that <laughs> they really are the same and they really have to, they, they have to deal with that. And, and if the premise of your um, existence to that point has been in a way that no one can possibly understand, <laughs> yes. it's, you know, it's fitting that in the end, I think they do understand each other, obviously, on some very basic level. Is this your favorite minute of the movie? It is very, that's very hard for me to say. I don't know, I, I, I don't know that I would, uh, it would probably will be now that I've got to do it. <laughs> but, um, I, I have so many favorite minutes of the movies and often it's the, of this movie and it's often the smaller moments i think of i think of the dinner scene i think of obviously the shootout is is one of the scenes in cinema that i have watched discreetly the most times because it is i don't think it's it's i don't it's hard to see how you can better it you know and it's and um but but you know there's yeah there are so many minutes as you've discovered right here on your (laughs) podcast there is it's remarkable because it's the, the the highest compliment that I can pay to anything is what we strive to do every time we make a movie. And, and, and you say this, can say this about Heat is it rewards every bit of your attention and yes. every bit of your study because it has been thought through with an, an absolutely comprehensive manner, not just on a, um, you know, not just in terms of literal story terms or, or, you know, piecing the tale together, but, it's all felt and it's all subterranean. It's all been built out from, from the, from the deepest stuff and you feel that. And so it is the, where it does reward and, and honor your engagement with it to me. And yes. I think, um, yes. So yeah, so there are so many minutes. I mean, there's, oh, there is something to say about every minute there, of this movie. There is. I, I just wondered it because I guess now that we've arrived at the final moment, so many people have asked me through the film, like, what's your favorite scene? What's your favorite minute? And honestly, it has been an, an evolution because to, to, to your point, um, you know, the, the Dennis Haysbert um, sequences snuck Absolutely. up on me, how, how powerful they continue to be. Like they just, they, you know, there's such a, 
there's such a way that we watch movies, especially when you watch them when you're first a little bit younger and you may be a little bit less, um, you know, trained, have a little bit less of a trained eye of what you're looking for or, or looking at the craft. But the, the, those scenes are just so perfectly crafted and powerful. Like they're telling this little mini arc and this gargantuan thing um, and then the culminating moments, it doesn't lose it. It's not for, it's not just for um, a digression for digression's sake. Like its end is, you know, her, her engaging with a blank TV screen, essentially a TV screen of a, a picture of her husband who's now yeah. put down by police. You know, I'd, those moments probably the all... person who had every reason oh, to be able reason. to move on and change and couldn't do it. And it's so authentic. I mean, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think, yeah, practically everything that involves him to me is really, really the heart of the matter in some ways and, yes. and his decision that, you know, I, I, again, I'm sort of obsessed in cinema too with watching people make bad decisions <laughs> yes. and, and seeing what happens as a result. And, and no, that moment where everything goes wrong is really to me, the fascinating, the moment when the tables turn and the, the die is kind of cast and, um, there's, there, there are many of those moments in this movie. And I love, uh, I think that the, the subgenre of that great thing of watching people make bad decisions is what make, watch, watching people who are so good at agonizing, like, you know, Haysbert does such an amazing job, again, wrestling with the choice, not saying a word, like just with the, with the uh, you know, the determined sort of bulldog of Neil McCauley, like completely un- uh, unstoppable force in front of him, staring him down. And he's like, yeah, man, fuck it. And you're like, Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You watch it again and again, you're like, fuck it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Like, this is not going to end well. This is absolutely yeah. not going to end well. Well, exactly. And that's the, the, it's like the, prof- the profound nature of what seems to be such a, on paper, you'd say is flippant, but it's yeah. the absolute opposite. opposite. It's, it's a rejection of what's left in his life, basically. Hmm. And, and it's been earned so, so, so well. And I mean, and again, like, you know, so many people have rightfully talked about like the role of masculinity and Michael Mann's movies and heat specifically. And I think it's, you know, in those scenes and that idea of it's a, yeah, I think it's a critique of the trap of that, of, of, of pride. I mean, that pride is such a, is a trap, you know? Yeah. Um, I heard a, I think, um, speaking of, uh, uh, like a, a funny contemporary sort of entanglement with masculinity, Amy Schumer's latest comedy special is out and she actually says, you know, she's like, women are scared of, most scared of violence. She's like, mm-hmm. and so everything with us is like worrying, you know, do I have to walk to my car with my keys in my hand, et cetera. And she's like, men are scared of humiliation. Yeah, and she's and she, and obviously she then goes on to do a, a you know quite hilarious bit like oh did I insult you? Boo. Like <laughs> it starts to sort of tease out with like oh I'm sorry like I've got to fear violence and rape and things and you guys have got to you know fear being teased. Um, and so but I but that's what I think in this moment is that you, you nailed it. It's like his pride of actually being in that space and being with that horrible bud, you know, bud court being such a complete ass and, and having, there's like no sign, there's no signs of life that he can see outside of that space. He's so imprisoned in that little pocket. And even though Neil is like definitely a symbol for being in prison too, 
yeah he, he's he's like oh it's freedom it's freedom yeah. it's this weird right. false freedom oh here he is like yes i can get out of this thing and you're like no he's the trap he's the yeah. trap no exactly exactly and i think that's such a uh such a uh again it's a moment that has so much to it because it's about also how eager we are to throw away people yes. in society right so it's like everything is being is 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 shoving him into a corner and then you have this person who's offering you know again you said like like an escape that's really a trap yes well, yes, that, as, as we do on this show, it wouldn't be right if I didn't with Phil go on a massive digression, not about the minute that we were talking about. But just, yeah, I, the reason I went down the digression is because there's so many minutes that I love in this movie. But I think that, like you said, there's something and, – and, and part of the reason why I want to examine that with you is like there's something so elemental and so incredible um, that is happening in the minute that we're watching, you know, the experience of death, the experience of the film – you know, we get to look at Pacino as the audience and we are kind of Pacino, Vincent Hanna in that moment. Like we're having to process everything that we've just seen and like the gravity of everything that's just happening. And then if you talk about shots that you've looked at or moments that you just don't know if you could top it, the finals frame of this movie, you know, that there's that great Twitter one perfect shot, which I think they've put yeah. this this shot up like ten times, um, or, or or every time it comes up, someone like tags me in and goes, "Blake, come on, you know this is you, right?" And is that final scene, that final shot behind behind Vincent, Neil in yeah. the frame, you know Vincent on the right hand side, it's still the LA skyline, and Neil with the runway lights, like he's moving through this transient space moving on to the next phase of his journey and Vincent's yeah. still standing there so stoic. I just think it is one of the most magical and well-earned, epic, bombastic final shots, especially with Moby's score underneath it. It's just like, oh, yeah. it's just oh, so wonderful. Perfect. I mean, I, I, to- I agree with everything you said and it, it's just, it is, um, you know, I love a movie that has a final shot that offers you uh, kind of everything you need to know yes. in a way. And yes. after all of the detail of this movie, of which it's so, it's one of the most richly detailed movies of its era. You know, I mean, just <laughs> like we said, peer at every part of it and find interesting information that's not just the main story, you know, that it's all there and that it gets reduced and funneled like a life into one moment and one final image. Uh, and it's a beautiful image and it's exactly, it just, it just feels right. And then when you combine it with that incredible music, I mean, it's, um, that's the, that's cinema. That's, that's the movies. That's the movies. Know? Well, look, I think that is the perfect way to end this segment of this behemoth final pre-credits minute of one hit minute. Phil Hay, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much. I am so happy that you uh, asked me to do it, and uh, I could talk about every minute of this movie. <laughs> so you do reboot the podcast after I'm I'm here for you. <laughs> well, look, we missed it in our minute, Phil, but I'll tell you, I'm never going back. I'm never. Go- I'm. Ne- I'm, I'm never. I told you I was never going back, and uh, but I will continue to say. Um, by the time you guys are listening, folks who are listening to the show, you would have known that wonderful author um, and uh, East Coast man, Reed Coleman, who is the co-writer of the upcoming Heat 
prequel slash sequel novel um, wow. has been on the show. And obviously, uh, he would like what Michael and he are working on for Michael Mann Books Press to become a film. And I have made the commitment to him as I've made, I'll make the commitment to you. If there's a heat prequel sequel novel that gets turned into a movie, the podcast is coming back. Yeah, that's <laughs> But I hold you to that. <laughs> everyone can hold me to that. But uh, I, I'm going to let the rest of, uh, the, rest of the wonderful internet um, tackle the rest of Michael Mann's oeuvre. And if you need a guest for a podcast on a Michael Mann movie, you're breaking down minute by minute, I'm happy to come on. But this is the end for me. Yeah, but we're doing... Karin and Matt and I have uh, a couple movies that um, uh, are on the launch pad. And I think one of them hopefully is going to get started this fall. So... Well, That's where we're at. Well, uh, as rabid fans of um, all of your collaborations, uh, we can't wait. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of One Hit Minute. We can't wait to see what you're doing. Um, and I heard Karen talk about you guys staying in the movies um, as opposed to uh, pivoting to TV. So please do, because movies, we, 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 we want to see your movies on the big screen. Um, and continue to see them and then uh, even in Oz luckily enough we get things like the invitation on Netflix and Destroyer uh, with Nicole obviously gets a theatrical on which is lovely so we'll see you um, soon but guys thank you to Phil Hay for being a part of the show and uh, thanks for listening and we're still going if you've listened to this show and you're on the internet and what I like to call one heat minute Twitter which is not quite the cesspool <laughs> of film Twitter uh, and not quite the cesspool of just Twitter in general, One Hit Minute Twitter, um, you're going to know the guest who I'm speaking to, a, a veteran OG film voice. The voice, when you're talking about the award season, staple of variety, and what I actually get to reveal and scoop. This, I'm, I get to scoop with a guy who's scooped right now, like who's scooped the living daylights out of many, many things in his enduring career. A recovering journalist, a 90s nostalgist, the legend, Chris Tapley. Uh, thank you. That, that was awesome. What an intro. I'm just going to carry you around with me and have you introduce me to people. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. And recovering journalist. Do we have yeah. a scoop? What- yeah, yeah. Well, just, you know, we were talking beforehand. It's funny. I haven't spoken publicly about this or anything, but yeah, I'm, I'm out of the game as far as I'm concerned, out of the journalism world. Uh, hung up my spurs at Variety in March and just trying to pivot into my own projects. Got some things in the ether, a couple irons in the fire, and uh, ideally that life is behind me. But uh, as I was joking with you, if you find me writing about the Oscars in the future, then something went off the rails, <laughs> and, uh, and and I've still got a family to feed. So that would be the answer to that. But yeah, yeah. For now, it, it, ideally, it looks like I'm I'm out of the game. Oh, he's walking away. He's walking away <laughs> just like Neil McCauley should have at every juncture in this movie. <laughs> That's it. He felt the heat around the corner, and he actually walked away. Well, look. Regardless of whether we see you again, if we see you again, it's our privilege. But if we don't and we see you pursuing your own projects, um, wow! Like we'll be you, you'll you'll make us deeply proud as uh, another another one who came good. So look, thank you, thank you. <laughs> look, so. we're we're here for uh, the entry point uh, that I've given you to the movie 
Chris, is the final minute, the ultimate minute, and and really kind of the, I don't know, like the elemental life force of this entire movie, the minute that Michael Mann even himself says that he reverse-engineered the entire movie about, and uh, what we spoke about, the minute that actually wanted you to make films, wanted you to yeah. be be involved. That's, that's no joke. I mean, it's kind of fascinating that you uh, invited me for this particular episode first of all uh hugely gratifying to, for this to be the minute that i'm on the show for this particular just in general just the final close of the movie which is such a beautiful close but that's absolutely true this is the minute of cinema that made me want to be a filmmaker uh that 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 is definitive i've said that to many people throughout the years and that you would happen to ask me on for this particular minute is just kind of crazy and cool to me but yeah 100 percent. so i think the best way to do this is do it as we have. This is the final minute pre-credits of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. His symphony of damaged masculinity, as Bobby Roberts coined it. Um, we're going to watch it now together, Chris and I. Um, and if you're listening to this behemoth thing, uh, it might be the second time you're hearing uh, this minute. But I think it's important for us to watch it together. You guys listen along again. And then we're going to come back and we're going to wrestle with it. Because it's you that I'm talking to now, Chris, <clears throat> how fucking much of a travesty is it that this movie was never nominated for one Oscar? Not one. Like, what happened? I think it's the greatest feather in its cap. <laughs> I really do. I mean, it, 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 movies like this don't deserve to be sullied by that. Um, it, it, because, because we're talking about it in these terms now. We're talking about this in terms of how did they miss that? Uh and how did they? I don't know. I mean, it's when I worked at Variety, you know, we have the the archives there and you can go back and look at like all the FYC ads for like 30, 40 years, however long they've been doing them. And uh, I, I went back and I was just like, I wonder how what they did for Heat. I did this around the release of the definitive cut when they had a screening at the Academy of yes. the movie. And uh, I was like, I wonder what kind of ads they had out there. And there, there weren't many. You know, I don't really know what the studio thought of the movie at the time or you've got this three hour crime saga releasing in december um on some hand you would think wow that seems like prime awards term real estate yeah and and certainly like you know something that could could happen and and he was coming off of mohicans and that obviously was an oscar winner and uh and and it just i don't know i don't know what happened there uh, maybe they were focused on Batman forever or something (laughs) but 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 either way like i said i mean it's it's better that it, it, it belongs to this universe of movies that weren't nominated. 
in my opinion. Yeah. It's it's yeah. the it's the great I I I've said it in the last couple of years doing this show like every time Oscar's rolls around just you know I, I think I sent out a cursory reminder tweet, "Hey guys, just a reminder, Heat was not nominated for a single Oscar." Um yeah. but I think I haven't approached it with that lens of like the greatest that's the greatest I love that so much that's the greatest feather in its cap that <laughs> it wasn't sullied 100%. by this mess it was not I mean sol- if it was nominated it would have still been lost I feel like it would have still not been you know get 8000 at the time it would have been like 5000 academy members uh, I, I wonder even if it was somewhere in the mix if they would even have known what to do with it I mean it's a movie that needs a little bit of time, but not a lot. I mean, for me, it was instantly transcendent. Like immediately, I, I was telling you, I mean, it, it was the movie that made me decide, oh, I, I think I want to do that. The way this person just made me feel, I want to do that. Yes. And, you know, it was the moment that, I guess there's a moment for everyone where movies, suddenly they they can be transcendent. Like they're, they're not just entertainment. Yes. And that this was the movie for me. And it was maybe a little late, too. I mean, I was, th- I think, 15 when I saw it. Yeah. I saw it in 96. Um, I, I think it was 96. It was like December 96 or January 97. Whatever it was, it was the, it was, I'm pretty sure it was the HBO premiere date yes. when I saw it yes. on TV. And, uh, and yeah, it was instant. I would, and, and it was this moment, too, that just sealed the deal. I was just like, I want to do that. I want to I want to figure out how to manipulate images to make you feel this when you walk away from it. Right down to that final shot that you say as he's mentioned in the past that he he came up with that first and he worked backwards from there. The one the, the, the one perfect shot Twitter was made for that shot. Was made yeah. was made for multiple shots in that little sequence we've just seen. Absolutely. How good I mean you know you've you've been covering this for such a long time, it's like people talk about um, when we talk about like Oscar not being up, like uh, as not sullying certain films. It's like that's kind of the badass thing about like Scorsese that some of his most gargantuan like Titanic influences for like all other filmmakers bar none. Like they're just yeah. not even touched by the Oscars. And so when I think about this moment too, I think about you know, people feeling like Pacino maybe didn't have any more, more like acting chops in him. So they gave him his, like put him out to pasture Oscar with, you know, center for woman and you get yeah. this. And, and this is always a case study for me where I go, it, I, I, I just struggle to grasp in my mind how people can't look at these guys performances and not, marvel at them like they should be studied and i think this show has studied them <laughs> like and i again yeah. i scrutinize and i scrutinize pacino because particularly i think people just walk away or, or face value the majority of people who've been on this show talk about de niro's incredible performance you know very very controlled very insular not a lot of panic we've just seen a lot of panic a lot more you know lot larger emotions in in, in the lead up to this final moment and in reverse Pacino in his natural element, hunting down this guy, finally catching him, and then having to bear the weight of this entire film on his shoulders, and just process that without any any lick of dialogue. Um, I just think it's so unbelievable. It's just like like this is the mo- this is the re- you know we talk about the real like this this se- series of ten seconds is like a huge part of his whole career. One hundred percent. I mean, it's funny. Like De Niro is playing kind of the prototypical man figure. Uh, yes. and, 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 and Pacino is playing 
sort of the the negative image of that, which yes. uh, Man didn't play with a lot. I feel like until he dug in with with this movie, and obviously he did this movie twice, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, 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 it was calling to him. And in 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 the performance in this scene, uh, you know, when I was looking at it again, I've picked up on this before, but I I, I didn't really uh, sit down and just stare at it like I did. And what's going on on his face? I mean, the the the, the first the instant reaction he has is relief. My job is done. It's finished. Exhale, and he closes his mouth. And he, and he just kind of like, there's an obvious palpable sense of loss. There, there, there's a clear sense that, yeah, it, it, it's kind of, if you think about it, it harkens back to the line earlier in the film where he says, all I am is what I'm chasing after. Well, that begs the question, not to misuse the statement, uh, what are you once you've caught what you're chasing after? Yes. And presumably the answer might be for him, nothing. I mean, the, the final image uh, after De Niro has expired, and and and, it's, and so elegantly, by the way, that, that slow, oh, the slow is, is, is kind of amazing. Oh. But just the, the the frame at the end, where you have De Niro on the left, and 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 the the runway lights, kind of this ethereal spirit lifting away, this this kind of sense that that's what's happening. And then if you look on the right, just a straight line of lights, kind of feels like something simmering, but largely empty. That frame, that side of the frame, is empty. Yes. Because again, what does he have if he doesn't have what he's chasing? And that is all right here in his face in that scene, and it's and it's kind of stunning to to break it apart like that. And it seems to me he completely got what he was doing there. You know? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's not like some accidental actorly face he makes. I mean, it's like he was exploring those emotions and and really thinking about how his character was feeling right there. And the breaths, the breaths get me. The breaths actually almost make me choke up when I think about it. The breaths of like you know, you and I in our lives and people listening, you have a moment where you feel loss and you sort of, you, you, there's a moment where you cope with it and there's a moment where you try and stand firm. Like it's like stoic and you just try and give yourself a bit of rigidity. Like, I think I can hold this thing together. And there's a moment where Vincent again in, in it, it, and it's in 10 seconds. It's like mm-hmm. surgeon con- level control that he mm-hmm. just like exhales, like, like, he's not going to hold it together. Mm-hmm. And then the the genius is that we we first contend with his emotions and then the poetry of just that passive expiration. There's no mm-hmm. there's no additional dressing. Um uh, and it's one one reason actually I think, you know, a guy who's recently been in the news and then fired off of Twitter, um Joe Carnahan, I think in his best film <laughs> in his best film The Grey um, there's mm-hmm. a similar yep. moment of like just naked death where a, a guy dies and we literally watch people watch him die mm-hmm. um, and experience it in sort of like that movie's reality's real time. And it kind of, that that it it's one of those other movie moments that made me love Heat again was because I'm like, oh, that's one of the first times I've seen someone just not put any spin. There's no flash. There's no, there's no, there's no artifice. They're just letting someone expire. And mm-hmm. I, I, that's just so powerful. And then that final scene, it's all, once once it, you pass Vincent's face, I think that's what's, again, I think reinforces that transcendent moment for both of us, I feel like, is we're just left stewing and wondering. Like, it's just, it, all those things happened, and then it just keeps going, and then Vincent, like, what's going to happen? We don't know. There's inferences, but he's still there standing stoic, looking over this wasteland when nothing is there. 
mm-hmm. and Neil is off to the heavens. Yeah. It's almost like he was the ferryman too to to help him across. I mean that 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 Ugh. clasp that they have. It's like a conduit for something, you know. It's it's uh, it's that that all of that is the emotion that was hitting me when I first saw it, and what really just regaled me and just said this this is uh, this is a this is a notch above what I've looked at movies as what they could be. And also, you know, I'm a huge fan of westerns. It's it's uh, I adore the genre. I've written at length about the genre. I wrote a thesis about the genre. And this is a Western image. If you, if you that, that, that's black hat, white hat. You know, pardon the pun. Uh, that that's what <laughs> you're seeing there. And and and, and it's a, it's kind of Leone framing in in a certain way. Uh, it's, it's especially it's, Pacino's face because yeah. Leone like Leone gets the topography of faces mm-hmm. like unbelievably so. Like just in every crag, every line, dirt in 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 a in a scrunching sort of. Um, uh, sort of cr- crunched up faces that he likes, but they're like huge canvases. And yeah, this is this is as Leone as you get. Like yeah. that that that's not in the Leone movie, basically. I mean, this shot this shot deserves to be on a gallery wall somewhere. Like yes. it's a painting. It's a full on painting. Yeah, his his outdoor his fresco his neon fresco. Yeah. <laughs> that this is uh, this is Dante. Shout out a huge shout out to guest of the show Dante Spinotti for. Assisting in the composition and managing the light sources to give us this glorious shot. It's just, it is magnificent. There's something to be said about an ending, Chris, because some movies just don't know how the fuck to end. Especially long movies. Long movies. Oh, long movies. Like, I remember even most recently, and maybe it's because I'm talking to you, I, I tend to think of Oscars, but I'm like, Moonlight is one of the last great endings I can remember. Like just a, like an absolutely phenom ending that you just like wow that had some bombast about it like just the 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 turns, the subtleties and like getting back to, you know getting back to little finding little again at the end of that movie, um you know that you can't it's nothing to sneeze at when there's just a a, a powerhouse ending um of, of an epic like this, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, knowing when to end, how to end, where your characters need to be when you end, uh, you know, that that would have been an extended gunfight for other directors. Yes. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been played uh, like the the hunter and prey scenario that it is under another director. I think it wouldn't have. No other director would have seen the go- the, the gorgeous capabilities of the Moby song there. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Michael Mann uh, in 2006 when I first met him. I remember this because I, I've always been entranced by the way he uses music music and movies, and he had a wall of CDs behind him. Just a wall. It's not there anymore. He's, he's broken it down. He's got his, all, all his stuff digital now or something, I imagine. But it, just a wall of music behind him. And it was like, it was just interesting. It was just something I noted, knowing how he uses music in, in his work and uh, seeing that he's in this in this womb of, of music <laughs> when he's working in his office was just kind of fascinating. But yeah, I, I don't think uh, it's one of those things where a filmmaker, you know, when the, when they know their story, when they know exactly their story. Yes. And this is and that's rarely the case, I feel like, with such long movies. I feel like with long movies, the the director probably had a couple of stories, and he was figuring out how to reconcile them. This is a singular story told from beginning to end perfectly. Yes, that, and at 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 a, at a extreme length. 
and you just don't get that often. No, I, and you were talking about westerns. I was just thinking about you know the other the other iconic endings that I can think from western films. But there's nothing better than the Searchers ending. Like there's almost nothing better than yeah the 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 frame Shane. The, yeah Shane. Oh my god. Yeah, with the Searchers particularly because he, Ethan is left alone. Ethan mm-hmm. is left alone. He's exiting the home. He doesn't belong in the new world that he's just brought mm-hmm. Natalie Wood back to. <laughs> like he just doesn't. He doesn't belong there. Um, right. And so as he's walking away, there's that moment of like he can't stay in this house. He's taking this one final moment, and he doesn't belong there anymore. And that's mm-hmm. that's another ending that yeah, just it's it's. And, and, you know, man talks about reverse engineering it. Maybe that the clarity of vision that he had to, for that minute, whether it was, you know, in, yeah. in, 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 um, in abstract in his mind that that's how these guys would get together. Um, to your point, it's like, you have to earn it. Like, you have to, yeah. earn a few people I've spoken to along the process of this show are like, you know, for other filmmakers and definitely other films, if they ended on that Moby track after that ending, like you'd go, you didn't earn that. Like you didn't earn that, yeah. but I was like, at the yeah. end of the heat, everyone's like, "Oh no, they earn it. They earn it, and then some." Like it actually is the the, the moment of the movie. The, there's nothing left in the tank. I mean, it's no. all out. <laughs> it's like you're spent. You're done. Uh, there's there it is. There it was. It's it's it. All of it's left on the field. You know. <laughs> there's, yeah, you, there's there's no more. There's no more left. Uh, unless there's a heat prequel sequel novel, Chris. Which you may, yeah. I mean, about. I'm aware of that. I, you know, Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Michael. But Godspeed. Uh, uh, this this is perfect. He knows it was perfect, and until he tweaked with it a little bit with the with the removal of a couple of lines and the uh, it's kind of the colors of the definitive cut. But um, it's a perfect movie. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, it's a- I don't need to know anything that happens outside of this movie. Not I don't all. need to know. Came. I don't need to know what led into it. I don't need to know what happens after it. Uh, every frame is perfect. Yeah, I uh, and part of the reason why this show actually started with the Warner Brothers, the people who are listening, and are all the the ongoing frustration, I guess, for listeners is like, other than the fact that we play the the actual audio of the minutes, it's like, well, my minute's different to your minute. When I go and look at it, and I know that it's it's different, and I'm like, especially if you're watching the definitive edition, there are some shavings. There's some different. The Warner mm. Brothers Blu-ray is the 35 mil print. Like mm. that's what it is. It's the and and very recently I saw the 35 mil print. I'd watched the definitive edition on 4K release and came out in Oz. And there's a little boutique theater in Sydney called the Randwick Ritz, and they had the 35 mil print of this movie. And I watched it, and I was just like, there's. There's not a frame I cut. The sound mm-hmm. is perfect. The music's perfect. And and I don't know how you can cut Ferocious Arno. Don't cut Ferocious Arno. Well, you know Arno. what? I, I asked him that. I was like, why did you cut that line? And he, he thought it was, in his words, too ripe. Such a too- great description. <laughs> uh, he's, he's used that before about some other things, but it's just a, a Michael thing. But, like, I, you know, I, I, I like getting rid of it because you're left with just Hank Azaria's reaction in that moment uh, instead of like being pushed into that reaction by the line you hear. Yes. Yes. First. You're just kind of like on the, on the back of what <laughs> just happened, what he just said, the big explosion. He, he, he's just got this look of like, Holy shit, this guy. <laughs> so it's like, you don't need him to say ferocious. Aren't <laughs> so I'm okay with that. The detritus line definitely had to go uh, from, from Diane Venora. I think it was just a little clunky. 
either way though, I like it's it's if this is what we're talking about, it's not like we're talking about elite. You know what I mean? We're not yeah. we're not talking about drastically reshaping, restructuring things. I mean, it's it's uh, it's as close to perfect as you're gonna get. And like I said, I saw it in '96, and three years later, I go into film school, and that's when The Insider comes out. Could could not have. I don't think I've ever anticipated a movie more than The Insider at that point. Uh, and you know, you're just going into film school at that point with just the possibilities. First of all, you're going into film school in 1999, knowing what movies came out that year. Yep. Just crazy. But just coming off of the high of heat a few years before and how that kind of sent me shooting into just my cinema awakening, if you will, or what have you. And after that, finally seeing all the movies that you're supposed to see, uh, it takes something like potent like that to really shoot you like a bullet like that, you know, and that's, that's what it, for me. So, but and it's almost like the insider is almost the same caliber. Like it's just like he yeah. fires out the insider again, and you're like, Jesus Christ, that is another movie that is nigh perfect. Like it is just. I was at a party in film school one time. A guy was like, "So the insider sucked." <laughs> I wanted to like launch him into the stratosphere. I was like, "What? Why are you here? Like, <laughs> like if you can't see why that's at least quality visual storytelling at a minimum." Uh, I don't. I don't want you making movies, bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just like I'm desperate. He'll, he'll remain nameless. I'm to, desperate to, to, to go. Tell me what his fucking IMDb is, Chris. Tell me. <laughs> I bet oh, you I'll. <laughs> yeah. Look. Uh, they both just have this quality. You know. You, you're talking about the '90s nostalgia. Um, uh, they've got this quality that's that's just so absent. It's like it's very aware. It's very aware of its history. Both of these movies, they seem to be reverent for the movies that they, for the movies that they're influenced by, without being too glib. It's like in the nineties, there was you were able to say, "I'm going to make a seventies paranoia thriller," like using the format or the, the sort of the scaffolding of a seventies paranoia thriller, and I'm going to reapply it to a corporate. Corporate thriller, and 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 man, sort of is doing that because he's philosophically and socially inclined to to express these feelings in the same way that his contemporaries are. You know, even though he was making TV at the time of the Scorseses and Coppolas and stuff, were making movies like um, he he shares their 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 you know um, Alan Pakula, he shares their um, I don't know the the same toolkit, the same cinema grammar. Mm-hmm. So it it makes sense for him to make that, but it feels like at the time Tarantino was like. Tarantino was making the same, you know, when he bursts onto the scene, he's making those same kinds of choices, but he's younger, so he's making them more overt. And it's kind of like people go, oh, it's really overt. And I just think that at the time in the 90s, there were plenty of filmmakers who were like really super influenced by certain other films or filmmakers, and it just wasn't nearly as overt. And that's why I think we go back and retroactively appreciate them a bit more because it's just not drummed into your head as much. It's like you can actually have cognitive distance from their influences because you can just enjoy them for what they're attempting to do. And a lot of the influences in that era were pop culture influences. And and, uh, man's not influenced by pop culture. I mean, he's influenced by last year at Marion Bad. Yes. I mean, (laughs) you know, like that's, that's, uh, and the passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And you see it in the framing. I mean, the the framing of, of Wigand in Mississippi with the, with the trees, um, rule of thirds all over the place in that shot. You know, I mean, it's just, he, he, he's definitely working from, uh, the other guy's toolkit, but also, you know, he was what, he was 40 when he made thief. Yeah. I mean, he got started late 
like as far as like breaking into like the 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 theatrical feature world so um i don't know there's something to be said for that maybe maybe i'm saying that as like as like a go get them for myself (laughs) (laughs) it should be there's something to be said for getting started late and just having like the experience of life to put into your work more than the experience of life as you've experienced it in pop culture yeah i think that that's um you know there's another you know, I'm a huge fan of like the British office, you know, the, mm-hmm. the American office to a lesser extent, I guess, because I, I was so in, in Oz, I was so like influenced by the office, but it's like, that's the Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant thing. Both those guys, like Stephen Merchant's a little bit younger yeah. than Gervais, but it was like at the time that they made that, you know, Steve's like 25 or, you know, you know 25, 26 and Ricky's like 40, you know, they're, mm-hmm. and they're joining together to make it. And it's like, they got, they got some miles, got a little bit of yeah. miles on it. It's not like 18... And you just don't know anything. And I, you know, I, I feel like even watching this movie, especially watching this movie, I feel like if you're ever going to try and make a movie, and I'm just speaking for myself here, it's like I'm 34. I'm like, I don't even understand how I could make a movie before now. I have no idea. I'm like, now, now I get like the the mindset, the level of thought, the attention to detail, the focus that it would take to even start mm-hmm. to prepare and like try and get into that mindset but like mm-hmm. maybe that's the that's the brilliance that's the secret of him and that's why he's in such a rush in a way to make to make movies and stay busy and keep, and keep being creative because he's just got yeah he's got this energy he's like i've, I've you know I've, i don't know how much longer i'm going to be around i'm going to just keep making stuff as frantically as i can and he marinated in this for so long obviously i mean there was the original film la takedown but also just like the original, the real Neil Macaulay and just Michael's Chicago roots. I mean, it was just, this was something he marinated in. And it's so of a piece with his, just the themes of his work. You know, I, I believe he makes movies about how people are defined by what they do. Yes. Um, and this is, uh, I don't think there's a better distillation of that theme than this movie. I don't think there's a better distillation of that theme than this shot this final shot (laughs) because as I say again, Pacino is what he's going after and he's caught what he's going after. And now what is he? Um, he's what he does. What is he now? You know, I mean, sure he's off to the next case, but you know what I mean? Just in terms of the poetry of the story, what are you once you've caught your prey? If all you are is someone who chases prey, that's just fascinating to me. Well, Chris, I'll, I'll share with you, and I've now watched, because of the way that we're conducting this minute, the previous minute, uh, 165, that I recorded with a great writer, Travis Woods. Um, when we watched the, the, the lead up to now, when Neil says, I told you I was never going back, I was so uh, torpedoed by the moment when I was watching it with him in the readiness to record because I feel like I had that moment myself. And I feel like, I'm living that moment with you. It's like <laughs> now I'm here at the end of one heat minute. Yeah. And heat is my Macaulay. Yeah. And then what the what are you going to do now, man? <laughs> You're meant to be helping me through this, Chris, not interrogating. I don't know what, what are you I'm going to do now. I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to do? What, what, is, what have you learned about the movie from doing this? Like, is have, I assume doing this like is you know, illuminating in its own way. So have you 
discovered things about the movie, discovered things about yourself that you didn't know before you started this opus? Yeah, I th- thank you for that question. I think... Um, it's almost like what, I used to have a podcast. It, it is. It's, it's almost <laughs> like you've been doing this for 18 years. Um, yeah. uh, no, I think... I think the one thing that I've learned, and, 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 and this was an insight I'll talk about, like with Dante Spinotti, who came, when he came on the show, he talked about Michael mapping the emotional trajectory of the film, which I hadn't considered as an overt activity, but mm-hmm. it makes so much sense because what I'd always found with man is you can read reams and reams and reams from everyone that you you so perfectly you know sort of uh, distilled before, which is that he's the one of the most prepared filmmakers ever that's ever got like whenever he tackles a film he's going into battle like he's mm. he's as prepared as you can ever be and particularly he's uh aiming for extreme authenticity and he's building so much backstory and 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 character um into it so there's a there's the level of authenticity in it and, and how that all is undertaken and the preparation but i just hadn't paired that with a deep understanding of the emotional trajectory that he wanted his characters to go through because I'd always been registering it on an emotional level, but everyone kept talking about the actual technical, like, oh, look at how technical, you know, it's like the, mm-hmm. it's like these characters, no, look how good he is at this, look how good he is at that, not talking about mm-hmm. the actual, what he's going for emotionally. So I think if like, if I, if I said I learned anything from doing this, I learned that so many films waste frames and waste time and you can tell massive stories and 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 have um you can have multiple characters and they can all be completely serving a purpose even if they don't uh, it's not overt um and you can tell great mini stories in epics like the the dennis haysbert don breeden story in this movie is continues to come back and like haunt me as one of the great just tragedies of this entire picture and so you're just mm-hmm. watching it over and over again. So, yeah, I guess if I learned it, it's just like the mapping of the emotional trajectory and how important it is to know the entire time that you're trying to map out all this technical and all this, you know, this, you know, um, you know, this very tactile, like, experience of the movie. The emotional trajectory is so important. And, and Michael's command of it in this movie is almost unparalleled because he's so – he's got yeah. actors who are so in tune with his vision – along the way of the not only the technical but then this this emotional trajectory that like you can hit this transcendent moment that we've just been talking about and it actually does the thing that it intends to do mm-hmm. the intentionality from the outset is that we're going to get to this moment and we're going to be destroyed and we are and I, w- and I would say to that like you're absolutely right I don't I don't think it's like necessarily bifurcated I think that the that the emotion is is a result of the technique as a result of you know understanding that through line you're talking about and putting it in every decision you make in the movie. Yes. Whether it's where the light goes, whether it's uh, what's in the frame, uh, how it's in the frame. Uh, you know, just ev- every single element uh, has to be informed by that. And, yes. And, yeah, I mean, this movie is, is a prime example. Yeah, I just I, – I, that that's my, my key insight. But also just being blown – I'm just blown away by, by – um, I'm just blo- I'm just blown away that I legitimately thought that there would have to be a couple of minutes of this movie that that weren't riveting. Nope. <laughs> I'm like maybe there's one or two, and I thought I was biased going from the outset. From the outset yeah. of this show, I'm like, you know, the show started with the with with 
my friends Stu Cute and Garth Franklin are sitting together at a Sydney Film Festival and talking about projects that I wanted to do. And after I'd sort of, they were like my shark tank, I pitched them a couple of ideas and they just ate them alive and said they're, they're terrible. And then sort of had a come to Jesus moment with me, if you like. I said, what the fuck do you want to do? I said, I just want to talk about heat every fucking day. <laughs> and, that, and and that then mutated into this project. And I thought I was biased from the, out, the outset, but I just, every single minute of this show, uh, every single minute of, of this podcast that we've undertaken, every single minute of this movie, um, yeah, I've been struck by that. And potent. One, and potent. And one final thing is that so many films that are overtly influenced or say that they're influenced by heat, miss heat, have not been watching the same heat that every one of the guests and I and you have watched. They yeah. miss they miss the emotional dramatic core of the movie and they just yeah. look at the operatic action. Right. No, absolutely. Um it's one of those shorthand things that's a little lazy. Same thing with, you know, so and so is being inspired by Kubrick or Spielberg. It's like eh, Are they? Tear that break that down a little <laughs> bit and it'll fall apart. I mean, um this is this is potent in such a uh, beautiful way to me i mean there's a shot like i'm sure you've discussed it like um very beginning of the movie first scene of the movie when he's in the hospital there's just a throw it seems like it would be a throwaway shot of a guy like getting surgery or he's he's being uh and it's so like that would get cut by another (laughs) film but 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 it builds this weird atmosphere it builds this the moment in 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 its own way and I, it's just I, I've just always remembered that one fleeting shot, and I'm yeah, just like, that, that, when, when this, did you this shoot guy's, that? And this, why? Guy, this guy's large stomach, yeah, this large yeah. stomach. It's a live emergency room, and also it yeah. tells you so much about Neil. Like at the time, like retroactively, when he's I taking at, in every detail. That's what that's that's what it is. Yeah, he's taking in detail, and he's unfazed. That's what's yeah, so yeah. he's like. He's taking in everything. He's making sure he's checking that there is normal things happening, but completely unfazed. And so the minute yeah, he's out of the ambulance, like this guy's. This guy is clearly a pro. Like whatever he's doing, yeah. <laughs> he's a pro. I can't. I came to understand anything like that that felt like it was just a throwaway glance at something as an extension of a guy who walks into the room and clack, clocks everything that's yes. in there. Yes. So that's visual storytelling. I mean, to, to our point. I mean, that's that is potent work, and that that goes to building his inner emotional life and how the movie will proceed to attempt to chip away at that but uh as we know by the end uh, he, he ain't going back so no he's not well look chris tapley recovering journalist i hope that you're never going back i hope but i secretly don't like i've you've conflicted me like neil mccauley like i want you to get away to fantasy land in new zealand but i just know that you can't <laughs> But, but but I but I but I, I desperately want, um, I desperately want for you uh, to pivot to that creation, and I can't wait personally as a consumer um, to check out Thanks, any man. of any of the things that you're doing. I, I'm deeply grateful um, that you are doing the show, and I'm insanely grateful once again that uh, that uh, just by osmosis I gave you the minute that made you want to be a filmmaker, and so. Um, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being an here. honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. If you're listening to today's show, you're already hearing that it's slightly different. It's a gargantuan 
epic episode and as it should be it's the final minute of this masterpiece now in the third part of this multi-part epic ending to one heat minute um oh you know and culminating the movie heat um i've got something slightly different uh i've got i've got a well how, how would i put this i'd say in the lineage i've got someone from the lineage of uh, chicago cops you know, and so someone who's intrinsically tied to this movie because ultimately Charlie Chuck Adamson, the Chicago cop who inspired the conversation that sort of gestates nearly this entire film, is so intrinsically tied to Chicago. Michael Mann is a Chicago guy. Um, couldn't be any more Chicago if he tried. Um, and and you know, this guy, um, like so many other wonderful people who I've gotten to engage with, has just been a fan of the show. And uh, I, I get thrilled and enjoy waking up to messages as people track along the show. And occasionally, with even especially with my current guests, as they're rapidly catching up, I get new messages and new emails <laughs> and new insights or they've sent something and then they catch up to where they've spoken about something. And I thought, you know what? If this show has been anything, it's about getting people, our Heat people, our man fanatics um, together to talk about Heat. So I thought I'd get like a fan of this show, someone who's been geeking out the entire way through. And uh, and he's in Chicago right now talking to me. It is Mr. John P. Glenn, fan of One Heat Minute and amongst many other things, and Michael Mann. Welcome to One Heat Minute. I am indeed in Chicago and a super fan. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> uh, I you know, most most uh, guests say thank you for having me. I have to say um, thank you for acquiescing to my pestering to uh, <laughs> to being part of the show in some way. So obviously, uh, you know, when you asked me to do this particular part, it was it was a huge honor. And uh, yeah, as as much as anything, thanks thanks so much for this chance, and thank you for the podcast. We can get into that later, but uh, we'll get we'll get into that later. Look, I'm gonna um, uh, I think. What better way to kick off for John? He's he's listened to every single episode, um, as you guys have, and he's doing this episode. But he's gonna sit here with me, and we're gonna watch the minute together that we're talking about, the ultimate minute of this movie. And I'm gonna uh, and I'm gonna get to feel what it's like for someone who's been listening along to the show, you know, for now more than 165 episodes <laughs> to experience right. watching their own minute um, uh, before we unpack it and we dive in. So, folks, you guys are going to listen along and John and I are going to watch this minute together and we're going to come back and unpack it yep. with you. Outstanding. Just so, that, just that 
crescendo of uh, God moving over the face of waters to the to the blackout is just uh, how, how do you not get chills? How do you not? Every time, mate. Every time. And for people listening to this gargantuan episode, this is about the third time they've heard that. The third time they've heard that clip and had to imagine <laughs> and just hearing the underscoring of gold moving over the face of waters and that this moment synthesizing in their minds as the ultimate moment of this movie and this wordless exchange. Oh, man. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to think your idea for this episode is just to make a drinking game out of, you know, every time we uh, sort of hit the same beats. And, you know, something I, I thought about, you know, we got started a little bit late today and I I did not think about I, I might not have thought about this if if we if I didn't have a little extra time but the uh the sort of miracle pop culture miracle that Moby and Natalie Portman are sharing headlines as we're recording this in late May <laughs> yes and like it did not occur to me until I was thinking about God moving on the face of waters and Moby and it's like oh I was just reading about Moby wait and Natalie Portman <laughs> this is cute. This is the synthesis of heat. And I'm I'm just going to let people know right now, as John is talking about it, I think we both, and uh, one of us has to do it after we record, is like, this is another person that Moby didn't date and just take Robert Robert De Niro dying there. Just all the heat characters, just stills from heat. So I'm going to start that, and I think you can just keep going. And I'm just going to retweet every single one because that's exactly what has been happening. <laughs> no, I've had some great, I've had some wonderful responses from folks going, um, going. Moby's trending. Natalie Portman's trending. Oh, great! Blake must have had two guests on one heat minute, and I'm like, got to be a heat sequel, right? <laughs> I'm like, I would love that to be true, but unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> It's just some weird internet creepiness going down, and uh, oh man, so so great. Now it was. Do you know was that uh, was that a Moby song chosen for the movie, or did he write it for the score? I don't even know. No, I I had never heard it until. No, I'd never. I've never seen it before, um, and I've never seen that that particular track before. I know there are multiple versions of the track, so mm-hmm. later I believe it was applied to an album, but I think it's. Um, from from what I've been able to glean, and, I'll, and it's really hard. Like to be honest, guys, like you guys will know with Heat, there are some really well researched articles and pieces, and you know, face to face interviews with men that have been referenced throughout this show. But one thing that sucks is like Wikipedia. Like it sucks. Like basic info about things suck. And so um, another man example is um, there's some wonderful Audio Slave songs from the third Audio Slave album. Um, that are in Miami Vice that were written mm-hmm. for Miami Vice and then later massaged into individual tracks that eventually appeared on that album. But they were written in conjunction with the release of that movie okay. because Michael Mann wanted it. So I would imagine that he gave it a crack. You know, very even as much as like we're recording this in late May, you guys are going to be listening to it in early July. Um, Elliot Goldenthal only like a couple of days ago like publicly tweeted. Um, the ending of Heat, which um, you guys would have listened to in the Michael McLennan episode, where um, um, and which which I'd never known, um, which I'd never known about, was a great learning thing for me. Which is um, episode one thirty six. If you want to go back, is we played over the end of that episode the his uh, Golden Ball's original ending closing score, which eventually went into the movie Michael Collins and eventually won that huh. best be, best score um, for that movie. So it's like a weird um, Heat connection in the in the Oscar win. So yeah, I haven't been able to find a lineage, but all I know is that it didn't exist before this movie. So I have to assume that that it was written as part of this movie. 
I, I just wonder for, for you or Heat fans, like if it would, if the song would be as sort of powerful, if if not for the association with the movie. I, no I way. just think having, yeah, having heard it there first, there's no way to disassociate, there's no way to hear it and not put yourself back in that, you know, that LA runway. No, there's, um, there's no way. I think if you heard it in isolation too, I think if you hear Moby music, some of it, it's, you know, especially, you know, for people like John and my age with 30s, you know, like like mid-30s, early 40s, there was a time where, like, Moby's music was so kind of omnipresent and you heard it in right. a lot of scores and they felt like they skewed younger. Like, this attachment or connection and ongoing relationship with Michael Mann specifically feels like a bit of a... Um, it feels like a more le- he's most like legitimized arty kind of films, even though these you know Michael Mann doesn't make necessarily arty films. Uh, right. Yeah. As a, a public perception of those, it's more like these muscular action movies, man angst, right. etc. Um, but I think that you know his connection with Michael Mann really solidifies a position as like he's oh he could be a prestigious person who can uh, uh, be, be an architect of a movie score or like have huge mm-hmm. needle drops that go in a movie that are magnificent and I think it's only if you kind of have that connection but his scores are in like a stack of late 90s movies like especially mm-hmm. his more popular tracks just needle drops boom 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 they go yeah. into all these things but I think this is one of the first that like wow this guy's actually a presence yeah and I mean we're talking about the audio a lot because that's the I mean that's the, the dominant audio is, is the Moby score but um you know, we didn't actually cut to credits, as people now know, for the, like you said, for the third time, that uh, you know the credits don't actually oh, kick they in until just about ten, click in. seconds They left. just right. click in. It's 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 uh, unit producers um, that yeah. just click in at the bottom, and that's it. That's all you get. But really, it's wow. really it's the realization of Neil's passing, or the the, the, the clasp of his hand, Vincent, a wash with. Everything that's happened in the movie, everything that's happened in their interaction, Neil slipping, well, Neil slipping it, away, and then that. Yeah, I mean, it opens with uh, you know De Niro's, or I'm sorry, Pacino's eyes are just kind of darting out into into the distance, and I, I took a cue I think from you and kind of looked at really studied the minute before as well, and realized, and I know in the um, at least the most recent episode I've heard with John Abrams, he he started to say I might be reading too much into this, and you wisely said like there's no such thing in this podcast of reading too much of it. But I feel so in the, in the minute before, if I can, uh, uh, I feel like as Neil is being shot, like we know he's been wearing a hotel security or a hotel employee jacket, you know. Yes. And we we had kind of to this point noticed the crest on the shoulder. Yes. But I feel like as he's being shot, because he's in the light of that, you know, that landing light, um, that we kind of notice it as almost like a badge shape more than it more than it had been defined. And so here's where I'm I'm talking about reading into like, was Pacino killing that sort of, you know, that sort of cop instinct in himself as he's shooting Neil? Like, I just don't I feel like the badge just that, that badge shape isn't isn't as um, prominent up until that scene. And, you know, so so then when we cut as our minute begins with his eyes just kind of darting out in the darkness, it's like, is he already looking for his next prey or is he is he really like processing everything that it's cost him, you know, to, not, to get here, not just with Neil, but, you know, all of his all of his collars, all of his cases. I think that's a great pull. And just because I know that John has already said 
what are we going to repeat in these episodes? Um, it's I think it's the most it's, it's a great read, it's a great pickup, and I think it's also the most overt mirroring we're having. You know, we are literally <laughs> looking in a mirror. So here we know that uh, for all the uh, for all the architecture of Neil's character and everything that we know about him in this moment, they are the closest to one another. They're the they are all they are is all all. All Vincent is is what he's going after, and so right. in this moment, it's that pure mirroring. And I think I think that's a pretty spot on. It's a pretty spot on pickup. I don't know how intentional it was, but I think that. It, but it, I think the intentionality of Michael Mann is um is pretty evident. <laughs> yeah, right. well, and I, it's funny you, you said that too about um you know all I am um uh is what I've got like uh is what I'm going after. Um, this again, I want to talk too much about the previous minute, but when we hear Neil say, I told you I'm never going back, like that's kind of his, in a way, like Neil's dying is almost his dancing down the hospital stairs. Like in the same way, Vincent was never going back to, you know, the regular type life <laughs> with um, barbecues and ball games. Right. With barbecues and ball games. You know, this is, you know, De Niro, De Niro's not going back to his prison either. Like he's, you know, may not be the way he meant to go, but it's, it's a different way in any case. Yeah, I don't, I think there's, um, I think it's only when you, there's been, and, and let, let, talking about something really specific that's been coming up is, um, there's a wonderful, that you guys would have heard before this um, in, and I'll just make sure I've got the episode number right. In episode 163, so a few episodes ago, you would have heard the amazing Walter Chaw, um, uh, film critic for filmfreakcentral.net. He's been talking about this weird proclivity on film Twitter for people to criticize things that are overt, like, you know, that that whole, like, turning your nose up at things that are obvious um, or on the nose, I think, is one of those things. Oh, it's so on the nose that this. And Walter's been doing this wonderful thread sort of talking about moments that are really beautiful and really obvious um, and really, uh, uh, you know, what you could say is just like, you know, really schmaltzy or really, really, really corny, but they're just absolutely Mm -hmm. stellar. And some of the examples that he was using is like, you know, in Donna's Superman where Superman's carrying the United States flag Mm -hmm. or like the moment in E.T. where Elliot and E.T. in the bike take flight. Or the moment in Batman, the original Batman movie, where Burton has Batman go up in into the, the sky in front of the moon, right? Like yeah. some people have got this like obviousness, but like as I'm saying this, I'm getting chills, and so I think right. that this this gargantuan moment, aptly being unpacked in this gargantuan episode, it's like we can draw all the allegories and the obviousness. Like it's like wearing it's both metaphorical and literal on its sleeve at the same time. I think that's actually the majesty of Michael Mann's stuff. He's like, and, and, and it goes all the way back to like great episodes of people like Brendan Hodges and great episodes of people like Niles is like, that's the, that's the illusion between Michael Mann and people like Antonioni. It's like metaphorical, literal at the same time. Like he's, he loves like, he plays that game on both sides of the fence and he just does it with his delicate balance. It's just such this wondrous art that he, he he's it's, able to construct. Even if even if some you know, something can be ham fisted and still powerful at the same time. Like Absolutely. Can, you know, yeah. Can still be effective. Yeah. It's looking for. Yeah, like um, like like the Tyrannosaurus Rex. The Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex yeah. like 
screaming, screeching at the end of Jurassic Park, and then that that like that ticker tape sign when like, dinosaurs, dinosaurs ruled, ruled the, the earth, earth flashes yeah. to the ground. Like that's like your heart exploding, powerful. Right. <laughs> like that that is what you know. That those moments, there are moments that are ob- like there are moments that are. You know, cor- like some people might call them corny, but it's like obvious. But it's like, no, this is like, this is what we want. This is like, it has to earn it. It has to earn you want, it to a you, certain. You want to go? Oh, right. I'm so sure, but you're sobbing, so you yes. can't uh, get the words out. Yeah, like like you you are crying. You're marveling at the artifice. You're marveling at the how clever it is, and you're marveling at like the bait and switch internally of like. I didn't expect this to happen, but I also expected it to happen. But it's right. just so perfect. It's it, that's that's what it is. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's why it, you know, because of man style, I think it it's conducive to reading things into like that. Or um, when the, you're talking about them clasping hands, uh, you know, really studying the minute, you just happen to notice that they're clasping left hands and. I went back and it's it's Lauren's left arm and thigh that she cuts. So I'm like, mm, is there something there to the whole like left side? I mean, then I started really, I, fi- I started finding you know parallels and everything. Then then, the- then then John is now going down the JFK route of like, really, yeah. <laughs> Lauren falls back into the left, back into the left of that tub. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Yeah. I didn't think we'd go there, but um, here we are. Yeah. Yep. Which, uh, culminating, and I'm, I know it's already been addressed, you know, in, in previous episodes, and I'm sure in, in the previous, you know, watches of this minute, the, uh, the parallel of that final frame with the, uh, statue at the front of the hospital in the very beginning well, of, what, uh, what, Mary holding Jesus. Well, what's so funny, John, is that, you know, you as a fan of the show, and again, I deeply appreciate it, is, I stumbled into that in the third minute of this show. <laughs> like, right. or whatever it was, the third, I believe it was the third minute, and I had never seen it before. And I think right. I'd watched this movie about 150 to 200 times before I even undertook this podcast. And I remember this minute so deeply and, and uh, at the time going, you know, it was one of those moments where I thought, wow, this show actually is going to work. I think this thing might have legs to examine every single minute. And I yeah, that that funnily enough, underscored by Elliot Goldenthal, right? Like the, his right. his title as as John texted me a little screenshot that we were talking. It's a, that that allegory is so perfect. And it's funny, it's a mirroring allegory. It happens mm-hmm. in, it happens at the beginning. It also happens in the minute with uh with Lawrence and Natalie Portman's character and then it happens here. It's that same mirroring throughout the movie. It's it's something that there's no way they could, there's no way you could have expected anyone to pick it up on the first watch no because, way. like, that's just an establishing shot of a hospital. We're at a religious hospital, but that final frame is so powerful that you can't, you know, at some point you can't watch the beginning without, you know, knowing the end uh, intimately. Yes. Um, enough to sort of realize. And it's so I, I'm glad you you put. Um, I also went back after really thinking about this. The um, and I, I can't remember if you addressed it in this moment in that episode. If, if you did, I think I missed it. But um, yeah, the parallel with uh, with um, Vincent holding Lauren outside the bath, it's like a mirror image. Um, the way you know, it's like a father and a daughter instead of a mother and the son. And 
I just there's, there's no way that was accidental because it was just like it's almost the same perspective and no. the the statue I, I went up down a rabbit hole last night <clears throat> learned the statue is a Michelangelo called the the Pietas the pity you know is the name of the statue as I'm sure most of the people listening to the show know already but um, they might not but yeah John this might be yeah. their first episode could be could be welcome welcome. <laughs> They could, they may not have gone quite down as many rabbit holes as you and other folk that I'm that I'm interacting with. Right, right, and that the the final frame too, I don't think I realized really until watching it for this minute. That's really only the second time we see them in a full frame together. I I kind of you probably know better than I will. I I kind of scrubbed the the bank robbery escape, and scrubbed the chase at the hotel. And I don't even think they're, or, or even the, uh, you know, even the shootout and on on the runway, I don't, I didn't even notice if there was like an over the shoulder shot with, you know, part of one and you know Neil running away or something. I think it's just you know the diner scene and the uh, and this final shot are the only two times we see, you know, both men pretty completely in frame. Yeah, I would, I would even say before the diner scene, it's the 89th minute, which we did with Manolo Dargis in the car as he's walking up. The car stops. True, the, is the the car stops the only other minute that I can most definitely say, and obviously the entire interaction, knowing right. that it's Pacino and De Niro on one another, you can sort of see the other's heads and side of face, etc. Um, but yeah, that right. preliminary diner scene, you can see his silhouette and like De Niro's face for fans of cinema. Um, you know, De Niro's profile is very recognizable. So as as Pacino's walking up, stalking up to the car, gun out, such a beautifully composed scene of anticipation, you can see him. But in this moment, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it. You know, speaking of a piece of art, um, that final composition, the split of the frame, it's just stunning. It's so well, and, beautiful. And and as he holds on them. Um... If you if you look in the the landing lights, the sort of blinking landing lights on those horizontal strips, it almost seems to be to the to the trinkling you know keys of of uh, God moving over the face of waters. Like it almost looks like it's somewhat choreographed in a way. You need that you know one perfect. The guys on one perfect shot. Yeah, have definitely had that frame uh, many right. times. But we need that gif. We need the gif of the twinkling lights. Okay. Um, Consider it. I'll, we, we, I'll we, tweet we, it to you tomorrow. We, yeah. need, we need that happening because, you know, I agree. I think that's the majesty of it is – and also you can kind of – I don't know if there's like an energy or the air or something. It looks like the even the city <laughs> lights have got that same effect. It's like it's mm-hmm. it's that just – that, that there's life. It's not just mm-hmm. a staging. It's life happening behind these guys and finding a way for them to be in the same frame and share this, you know, this epic vista, this nowhere in LA. And and as they're, you know, as they're at LAX where Neil should have been headed to begin with, you kind of wonder like, how far away is the plane, you know, waiting for him? I've I've uh, thought about I've thought about those hangers a lot. Like this is mm-hmm. a real heat fan stuff. Like, how far away is the plane? Yeah. How far away is the plane? Is the guy in the plane calling out to Nate going, hey, man, where's your guy? Like, he's not yeah. here. i got to go. Like, there's those things that you're like, is that happening right now? Absolute possibility that it is. So great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, so we talk, we were talking about the crescendo of, of uh, Moby as it goes to black for a few seconds. And then I realized when it you know, comes up a Michael Mann film, like number one, 
that's the most obvious credit. Like, I don't think you need that credit for anyone who is exposed to pop culture in the 80s or 90s. You could sit down and watch Heat, and I think nine out of ten people would go, oh, that's a Michael Mann film. <laughs> and not just, you know, not just uh, directed by Michael Mann. Like, in every sense of the word, that is a Michael Mann film. Yeah. Um, his, his fingerprints are just all over uh, every aspect of every frame. So um, I think that's just, you know, that I consider even that, part of the narrative you know i mean the credits don't really begin till after that fades to black and then you know we get the other uh uh the other crew up i think it's the greatest you know people might judge me for saying this but i genuinely think it's like i was really lucky my wife and i (laughs) when we after we got married we're in paris you know as honeymoons occasionally happen and we had a very long honeymoon we were in Europe and Africa. We saved up for like three or four years before before we went away. I had a small wedding, and uh, we went to the Musée d'Orsay, which usually mm-hmm. has uh, an amazing Monet section and Van Gogh, an impressionist wing. I and, have been, yeah. and I, I I think of it as as essential as a signature in a corner of a painting. You know, like you're right. looking at this masterful composition, and just down the bottom. In that, you know, sometimes bottom left or bottom right, you know, it's staged slightly differently depending on the painter, is you just see this little signature. And I just think it's so, it's such a beautiful little signature moment of like, I've, the person who has earned, it's much like this entire movie, like the stamp is so, you know, sometimes it's at the beginning of the movie, some people had, you know, there's been, I've heard there's been prints where there's, you know, that's at the beginning of the movie, um, and then it's moved to the end. Um, But this, like that signature is just like, especially for this show, right? That signature has been really important. It's it's been um, it's been a moment where you're just like, wow, this is yeah. here it is. Like it, it uh, is the, it is the moment that as I've been preparing and doing this uh, final final pre credits minute, um, it's like this is actually real now. Like that what? this project is is wrapping up. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And did you uh, have the other have the other discussions of this minute um, discuss the other two names we get to see before the no, end credits? Neither. Oh, they... <laughs> neither. We have we haven't well, gone to the unit producers. If you want to know, uh, I, I saw that. I just looked up because I was curious. I was like, "Well, we got to talk about every second of this minute." <laughs> uh, Kathleen M. Shea was is apparently a, a frequent man partner. She worked on some Miami Vice episodes in the eighties, and the only reason I I I, I bothered to write this down. If you go on her IMDb, she has t- exactly two acting credits: Cannonball One, Cannonball Run One, <laughs> and Cannonball Run Two. Amazing. So somewhere, somewhere, there's a pub quiz question like name all the people who were in Cannonball One and Two, and and you know that's an ensemble movie. There's probably 35 people, but <laughs> but Kathleen M. Shea is one of them. Well, do, can you see the second one? There's a two, is there two names, or is it just Kathleen M. Shea that we see before? Uh, it it's, yeah, it's Kathleen M. Shea, and then you see uh, Guzmano Cesaretti. And I apologize, Guzmano, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. And when I, I just because you know at this point I was curious um, if you look him up, he's 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 Google results come up first as an Italian photographer and artist. Um, so it's you know not surprising that such a person comes up you know so prominently in in the credits of this. But he did he also. Um, was associated with some episodes of Crime Story, um, uh, uh, Robbery Homicide Detective, Robbery, Robbery Homicide Inside Division, Division. Yep. Um, Heat, and then and then Ollie and Public Enemies with Man as well. So, 
So if anybody's keeping score, that's uh, that's those are the two names that we get to see before our uh, before our our minute comes to a pause. I love as, it as we uh, pick up the needle on Moby. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's it's Moby's still there, tinkering under the way, tr- trinkling underneath. Kathleen M. Shea, Guzmano. <laughs> Bless. Thank you for your service. Thank folks. you for your service. And obviously, you know, you you don't. It's not a surprise to see the regular crew of folks who man continues to frequently right. collaborate with. You know, there are a stack right. of them. Um, you know, some actors. It's usually you know a couple of actors do a couple of projects and they jump off to other things. Um, you know, Barry Shabaka Hanley is one who's popped up probably more frequently than others. You know, he's in Miami Vice, he's in Collateral, he's in Ali. Um, you know, there's a few like that that just sort of pop up. Jamie Foxx, obviously Collateral and Ali. Um, but, uh, you know, and Voight, you know, he, mm-hmm. Ali. So there's, you know, there's those certain guys all pop, in, pop up in and out um, of different things. And then Jamie Foxx and Miami Vice. So they're around. Um, but, uh, yeah, they it's... His entire back crew of folks are a lot of them are people who he's worked with his entire career. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, not surprising. Like I said, that they would get so, <laughs> such prominent billing. <laughs> yeah, well, look, there's a stack that if you remember all the way back to minutes one and two, there are a stack of names in that opening credits. Like it is all the massive heavy hitters. Yeah. Um, uh, in the cast that are there and the producers and and it's a it's a pretty intimidating little list of uh. Of primary well, folk, yeah, and, and you know, especially from a certain, um, you know, from that certain kind of '70s era of the sort of New Hollywood, um, you know, Pacino, De Niro, obviously, but then also like Bud Court, John mm-hmm. Voight. Um, I feel like Richard Dreyfuss should have had a cameo just to sort of com- <laughs> where's, complete that. Where's you know, that? Where- that that Avengers of the 70s uh, New Hollywood. Where's Dreyfus? Where's Dreyfus in there? If you're recasting someone there, John, where's Dreyfus ending up for you? I'd hate to t- I'd hate to uh, take away the role from Bud Court, um, but it would be, no, it would be no. interesting to try Le- leave, play. Him, leave him there. You know where I think Dreyfus is? I want Dreyfus just as... You remember that one cop? There's one cop at the be- at w- when Vincent arrives on the scene after the armored car heist, and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, so we... Are you taking this? You know, are you taking this? Yeah. Or is it staying with is it staying with division? Like gang bangers? Like I just want Al Pacino to have have that interaction <laughs> yeah. with Dreyfus and he goes, All yours, then just walks away. He just out. kinda makes uh, shrugs and that, walks away. That's the only recasting that Dreyfus is allowed in this movie as far as I'm concerned. And it'd be even more uh, hilarious because at the time it would just be like, Is that Richard Dreyfus? I'm I'm putting on notice the guy who erased the rat from the end of The Departed. Please put Richard <laughs> Dreyfus in, into that scene from Heat. No, no, no. I like the rat. I like the rat. That's speaking again, the of ra- the, the rat. I was gonna yeah call back to the the ham fisted and yet you know it was I I got that one I I gotta say even I was just like okay you know but we get it. The rat is no less obvious than the right. golden topped like Boston True. Monument or whatever it is, like a, the city hall that has that golden spire. You know, it's no right. less obvious than that. It's like the whole movie is a 1930s Howard Hawks Scarface love letter. Um, right. And then, you know, it's it's like 30 Scarface had sex with Infernal Affairs and then that's <laughs> what it is. Like it's just this beautiful, glorious, you know, um, very racist um, Boston, um, um, uh, you know, being attacked you know, being attacked by Scorsese, a beautiful, big, ma- masculine opera that it is. But 
it's no less obvious. You know, you see Damon's character, who is absolutely the rat, like looking at that thing like Scarface, like, and his destiny right. is being predetermined. Um, and so, you know, it, we think that the rat's going to survive, and he doesn't. Only the real rats. Yeah. The metaphor, you know, the the metaphorical rat that he is, um, he's gonna the the world is going to be balanced back out. The ecosystem. I think it was, a, it was an elaborate way to set up a sequel. No, but the rat lived. No, <laughs> the rat lived. No, yeah. that movie doesn't need a sequel. Everyone's dead. Yeah, everyone's dead. I love that moment. Yeah. I'll argue. I'll argue the merit of that moment. I'm gonna. <laughs> and speaking of merit, you have to do the your terrible Bostonian Matt Matt uh, Matt Damon accent. And I'm gonna see that he's awarded with the Medal of Merit. <laughs> Medal of hey, no, my friends is my friends are still coming, Dad. Sorry, I had no idea about that van. <laughs> I didn't think we'd do departed quotes in this either, John, but that's just what it is, Fine, right? That, that... I hope I hope I hope that's another first for discussion in this minute in any case. It is. Absolutely. I learned speaking of and we're 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 way off the reservation here, but uh for those interested, there is a blog dedicated to otters who resemble Matt Damon. <laughs> and it's it's worth a Google. I promise. Oh dear! I I, I only I learned it this week is the only reason I, I I dropped that knowledge. I um I like I was just about to say I don't know how there could be a blog with otters that look like Matt Damon, and then I'm like, you idiot! You're the guy right. who's just done <laughs> one eight minute. Let right. the otter guy have his thing, and you know what, otter guy, bless you. Um, yes. And uh, if anyone's doing a Scorsese Departed podcast or a Goodwill Hunting Minute or something, you need to get the other guy on, at least for yeah, an episode. Right, Do yourself a favor. Right there with Kathleen M. Shea and Guzmano Cesaretti. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your Matt service. Matt Damon. Matt Damon, <laughs> our guy. So, John. <clears throat> yes. We're nearing the end of this thing. We're nearing the end, and I had I made some notes of uh, you know part of the part of the reason you let me uh, belabor you into into letting me be part of this. Uh, was to you know just to bring a little bit of a I, I admitted it fanboy uh, perspective someone who like heard of the show was way on board from the get go I actually almost through my own ignorance almost wrote it off because I don't know why I always had in my head like since the day I saw it that the guy who sells Chris the explosives I was convinced that actor was Buck Henry yes and like so in the second or third episode. I, I, I forget who the co-host was. I'm sorry, but um, you're you're talking about how you couldn't remember his name, and I was like, these guys don't know Buck Henry. What's wrong with? And then I, you know, when you when you did identify him, and now I will forever know that it's Martin Ferrero. Um, I just I, I was like, wow, that's what else might I learn from this, uh, <laughs> from this ride? Fer- Shout out to Martin Ferrero, who for that moment, Martin Ferrero has been in like. All the movies, just in case you don't know, Planes, Trains, Automobiles. Yeah. He's the lawyer from Jurassic Park. He's he's uh, he, he's just in get everything. Shorty. He get shorty. He's yeah. just in everything. Like you could just go through his IMDb. He's in Crime Story too, which is um, obviously there. He's, he was in Mash, like as an extra in Mash, like many many years ago as well. Stack of movies all over the place, but um, even in LA Law. But um, you know, that's one of those moments. That's another one of those moments you just mentioned back to Ferrero of like. It's a it's a moment that you could almost immediately dismiss as it runs past you, mm-hmm. but then you're like, look at him knowing that there's something wrong, right? Like I'm sure he gets shady guys into that store a fairly lot. frequently, and, and, so, he can, and he, he knows can tell that, 
He can smell yeah. that problem. He's like, yeah. there's something wrong here, but, but I, don't, also, I don't have time. Like, but not enough to stop the sale. Or, That's right. It, like, he'll have he'll have plausible deniability if something goes sideways. That's right. I didn't. I mean, look, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, I. So, um, yeah. So if I if I could flatter you a, a bit with just a couple thoughts about the show, and I I, w- I would not say I uh, I think I speak for all fans. I'll say I hope I speak for uh, for fans of the podcast. Um, number one, I love that you can't repeat a Ted Levine line without doing the voice. I don't think anybody really. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. I can't hear Raul the word from sc- Raul from school. You're stuck. Push his eyes up. Yeah. Um, and like it's been fun. Even um, like the anecdotes about the movie that listeners to the entire series will hear several times. It's still it's been fun to hear the guests hear those stories for the first time about like that Vincent was originally going to cop cocaine outside of the club or the story about Michael Mann getting, you know, getting John Voight to agree to, to be in the film and stuff. That was, uh, it's just one of those, like you can hear those anecdotes coming again, but you're like, Oh, somebody else is going to learn this. This is very cool. You get to, you get to witness it. Um, and I, it's, you would think a sort of, you know, really, uh, microscopic analysis of the movie like this, would reveal flaws, but I think it's been great how much it actually makes you appreciate it more. Like you find more in the minutes. I mean, there's been discussions of, uh, you know, maybe some gaps in the plot or things that might've gone differently, but, but overall it's like a movie you thought you loved already going in, you, you know, now you have like the documentation in a way to, <laughs> to back it up frame by frame. And have you found that as well? Like, yeah, look, I think the one, uh, it was a, it was a Jordan Harper episode, which is really fun, where we listened to what would have been the reveal, the pre-heist reveal of Treo going back to Wayne Grow and Hugh Benny um, and, and Anna prior to Anna's yeah. death and actually filling in the filling in the gap there and then realizing, I guess, as, with that just as like one signature example of the ambivalence and the not knowing Mm-hmm. actually makes for me a funner ride like and that becomes just like an appendix like it, it right it, you, you kind of know that it exists but there's no part of me that goes you need to stitch that deleted scene back right. into this movie there's just and, no and, part of me that says that i'll i'd take it a step further because i i was really glad you know that that was not in the film because i kind of presumed I like to think that that uh, Benny had Anna already and that he was really under duress. Um, you know, the fact that he kind of came and went from the apartment and was able to make a phone call. And I'm like, you know, I don't know what else he would have done. I don't, I don't want to, you know, make it sound like he could have put up a fight against all of them. But I kind of like the idea that, you know, that at least to, to Neil's mind, Treo had no other choice. Like that was he. He was he was just just brutalized into submission. But the truth is, by the time they got around to damaging him, you know, yeah. it was already the it was up. So and also one thing that's great about it is that Treo was like, let's not make too fine a point on it, but Treo was betraying him. Like he made the choice. Right. He'd made the choice for Anna. Yeah. He's like, look, I'll give him up. And that, that's what I mean. I mean, yeah. He's like, I won't go. Yeah. I won't go. I've. I'm gonna go with Anna. Mm-hmm. And his assumption is that these guys have got her and he can just come back and grab her and get the hell out of there because mm-hmm. he knows that he's going to be on the run because Neil's going to, Neil's, you know, he's, he was lining the inside of a car boot at the beginning of the film. <laughs> you know, he right. know he knows what's up, 
you know, like, right. you know, however many minutes earlier that had been, you know, essentially, I think like 80 minutes earlier, he was lining yeah. the inside of a car boot. So, um, it shows, shows the danger of what happens when you, you know, don't keep yourself, no connections, nothing, <laughs> nothing can stop you if you feel the heat around the corner. Exactly. So, yeah, no, but I, I, I really liked that. I really liked yeah. that moment. Um, yeah. because we got to sort of hear it and I had some great feedback from folks learning about it for the first time, not aware of that. And, and some were saying like, oh, that was, you know, I would have liked that in the movie and me being able to say sort of definitively for myself, at least going, no way. I liked that. Right. I liked the ambivalence because I liked the panic and the frantic Neil searching through the house and, and trying Ooh. to figure it out. Well, and, and we are figuring it out as Neil does. Like if we yes. had seen that scene... And, you know, we're not, you know, Neil doesn't want to believe that Treo would have, would have betrayed them, um, which I just realized, you know, Treo betray him. Like that's <laughs> that too. <laughs> on the nose, that meant to be on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although that would have been planned a long time ago when Danny Treo was named, I guess. So. <laughs> um, we, we can definitively say here that Danny Treo was not named by Michael Mann before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A Michael Mann actor. <clears throat> um. And then I, one of the last things I wanted to make sure to get, and this is, you know, going going back yet again. This is going to sound like my my ham-handed woke reply, but um, for so this is a podcast field pretty dominated by guys um, about a movie that, that's very guy centric. Yes, directed by a guy whose name is Man, <laughs> um, and yet uh, the show has had so many great and and really um, first introduced me to a lot of women critics and fans. Who, when I say I'd either not heard of or heard of and not read, that's my ignorance. That's no slight on them. But like Manola Dargis, um, Katie Walsh, Joanna uh, DiMattia, like it was just great to be exposed to so many. And, you know, it, it never felt like you were trying to achieve some kind of balance or diversity or anything. Like these were just really genuine fans or people with expert opinions. Um, and so I think it's just, you know, for someone who listens to quite a few podcasts that it's, uh, uh, it's a it's a pretty cool thing to be proud of. Oh, thank you, man. Well, look, uh, I genuinely the 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 rule for being a guest on One Heat Minute is um ha- is and has been um, people who are Uber fans who I've been lucky enough that have reached out like yourself throughout the show. But other people are just people I've really wanted to talk to. And so if I could <laughs> just pull behind the curtain and go, I love Joanna Dematera as a writer. And Eloise Ross, I love Elo's stuff. And and Katie Walsh was a discovery for me on Twitter, um, reading a wonderful review, an absolute, like, pant that she wrote, and I just loved it. Um, I'm a huge fan of Fran Hofner and Brightwell Dark Room, and my best friend is an author and a, a film critic and a, and, a, and a journalist, Maria Lewis. And so I guess, you know, I've, you know, I won't like credit that the show has purposely done that, but I've tried to, I've tried to be diverse with like people and backgrounds and approaches, and you know, not just getting a usual suspects of lineup, but also I'm just genuinely a fan of so many of the people that have been on this show, like and multiple appearances. If I have been able to get them, or we've been able to work it out of people on the show, so like, um, you know, I think if I there's been a couple of crazy maniacs who suggest that I just run it back and just do the whole show minute by minute again. <laughs> Maybe one. Well, I was I was going to say I I I'd like to my I want to announce my project the one heat minute minute <laughs> uh, where I 
I break down uh, one minute of the podcast at a time. Oh, and I, God. Actually, I did the math on this, and at two shows a week, it would take 73 years. Oh, well, there you go. You, you, I, b- more power yeah. to you, bro. More power. <laughs> I could not. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to have access to your guest list uh, if that's possible for no. this for this upcoming project. A- absolutely. And look, and there's, so, like, there's just so many um, – there's just been so many great – folk that have been all across the show and i know i haven't been able to mention nearly but yeah that's my rule of thumb has been get the coolest people who like the show who might have an interesting take um and i I haven't been disappointed that's for sure so i'm not i'm not just checking some box for nephew and grandson of chicago police no you're you you know what you did um you brought in the painting and you you brought up the you know, look, this is a podcast, a minute by minute film, minute by minute examination of a film, and we've tried not to be repetitive, but there are certain anecdotes and things that come up, and you brought that up. I think it's important, and also, I'm just re- that. If you were to talk about one thing that I was really proud of is when I look back at the guest lists, and I'm doing it right now. I've got my my mm-hmm. run sheet as I'm talking to you. I'm like, I look at the list and I go, wow. Like I still yeah. go, wow, because I'm like, oh, there's well, so many people and- I like. <laughs> Kudos to you for keeping it all organized because I'll be, you know, I know you record them well out of order. So, you know, sometimes you'll be in a, in a later minute and you'll mention, you know, we're recording this back in and it must have been weeks or months prior. Yes. Um, but just like, you know, some sort of continuity to know who you've <laughs> talked to about what uh, and the instant recall to remember, like, who 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 mentioned what from way back when. And I, I, tr- I tr- look, I've just lived it. This is my favorite yeah. topic. I think if anyone who's got kids or you know yourselves when you're learning, it's like it's so much easier to learn or recall things that you love. It's like, yeah. are you going to remember? Uh, are you going to remember that really boring, monotonous thing that you did during your day, or are you going to remember like the way that Al Pacino's face moves, or that the, the exact precise angle that Robert De Niro's head is in the conversation scene in Heat? Like, yeah. there are things you're going to remember that are much easier for me. Or the way, the way it's like the goddamn chicken gut over. Oh, right. Yeah, like, like however you. The, the clap wipe of your hands um, and then like the Justine's like reaction, you know, th- those things. You're going to remember yeah. those things. They're, they're just going to – they're randomly going to pop up in your life and you're going to remember them way more yeah. than you actually remember anything else. And I'm I'm not working tomorrow, so I'm confident after we hang up, I'll have to watch them uh, watch them and remember them and, and uh, cherish them all over again. Oh, man. Thank you for that. Thank you. Well, I think – I think, I think this is the perfect place. I think this is the perfect place to end. <laughs> that's another thing that I've been saying recently because sometimes you just feel it. You feel like it's now. You feel like it's ready. So yeah, you're not just you're not just gonna go. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> cut. <laughs> Silence. Maybe. Maybe yeah. I might have to cut. Don't um, rule it out. Feel uh, free to cut that out uh, if you want to. Yeah, that 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 might that might actually get cut because that <laughs> uh, that that could be the that could be the end. That could be the end of the show. But look, John, I just want to say, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting and for every single person who's listened to all these episodes. Um, thank you because you've dedicated your time to this and you've chosen to listen to one eight minute. And when it's all done, um, you know, I, I would imagine um, the thing that I would hope and I genuinely um, am in the process of doing this in the preparations for the wrap up of the show, re-listening to a stack of my favorite episodes Um the thing that I genuinely would have hoped is that towards the end of this project, I could wrap this thing up and it would exist as uh, 
one of the definitive analyses of this movie and that it could be revisited at any time and people would enjoy mm-hmm. it or and you can do it in part or scenes or whatever in a few minutes of everything and so um uh, i just uh, i thank everyone for being a part of it and listening and and wonder if you'll ever listen to it again and if you do you know where i am on twitter or go to mail at oneheatminute.com and you can just let me know that you're still listening and and yeah. i'll uh, and i'll most definitely respond and if you're like john and you've now got my we text each other so there'll be random to hate text quotes for until the end of time and i'm, I'm more than happy for that so we'll, man, we'll be so responding much. to them 12 hours apart but yeah <laughs> exactly yeah thank you i mean as as a fan you know thank you for the show and as as now as a as a an honored guest thanks thanks very much for for asking me to be a part of this big minute well every ending if it doesn't have some connection to a beginning it's kind of a deficient ending in my mind it has to say something it has to clo- have some kind of closure it has to speak to all the things that we've seen throughout the person who spent the first three minutes the person who like Robin Williams did to Matt Damon in Good Will Hunting, sort of shook me into a state of uh, uh, near tears <laughs> and soul-searching, the likes of which I'd never experienced before, is back. We're back to where it all started. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome my dear friend, that's all you need to know, Stu Coot, back to One Heat Minute. It's a classic callback. It's classic a, callback right to the beginning. It's the callback all the way to the beginning. I'm honoured to be here. And as I said on the last time I was on, I'm not surprised because you've been quite the determined um, creator yourself <laughs> with this. But there's a tinge of pride here as well for me that you're here, that we're having this conversation about this deep into the movie. Um, it's been a hell of a ride for you. Mate, it's been a huge ride. It's, be, it's been an insane ride and I think you've been so great along the way, um, chiming in on Twitter, your favourite bits and, well, and things like that and... and, and uh, taking the mickey it's been a great journey because i kind of know when you've listened to an episode <laughs> well that's the thing and i i need to thank you for i was thinking about this on the drive over to your place today of like the things i selfishly have gotten out of this show <laughs> sort of i've met there's sort of had a lot of fun banter on twitter with people and you know going the back and forth and yes and just playing in this world but also you doing this for this movie reinforces every time anyone goes back to a movie they love like for me growing up it was watching the star wars films and you'd put them on and go i'm not even going to follow the action i'm just going to look in the background yeah and how many times you'd go i've never seen that before and you probably have subconsciously you've probably seen it a million times but on this occasion on this watch it feels new yeah and that's what's the beautiful thing about revisiting these things over and over and over. And you have, you've done the biggest like autopsy. <laughs> you've taken out every organ. You've weighed it. You've measured this in every way possible. Yeah. But when you go back and watch it, you're like, huh, I've never seen that before. And I think that's part of the joy of this. And you've sort of legitimized that feeling that I think a lot of people have when you go back to doing something like this. And you watch it again and again and again. And for that, I, I say thank you. Oh, mate, that's really nice. Look, I, I think I think that some people find, you know, even great, like, friends of ours and, and guests of this show, like Garth, our friend Garth Franklin. Like, I talk to Garth because, you know, he watches a stack of TV during the year for Dark Horizons, a stack of movies. And he'll say, you know, 
he he won't revisit things obsessively. There are like people like you and I who I find like I'll revisit things obsessively. Like uh, even recently, our friend Lukey Buckmaster was talking to me about another thing that I love, which is Deadwood. He's like, oh, "How big a fan are you?" And I didn't go into the detail then, but I was like, "Oh, well, kind of for three months, I watched it every day, yeah. and then when I finished it, I started it again, yeah. <laughs> and then and then I watched it again and again and again and again. And I think it's like there are some texts." Um, and people really with books like read things voraciously like they read the works of Shakespeare and they'll just go back and read all the plays and then they'll go back and read all the sonnets and I feel like movies don't not these days don't have that currency but people used to experience them that way that that was the beauty of like the VHS era is that you could finally voraciously consume something over and over and over again and like fall in love with it and maybe that's just because where I grew up but I haven't fallen in less love with this movie. I've fallen in love but this is, so much more. This is going to be like the Harry Potter, like a holocron. Yeah, You're going to keep a little <laughs> bit of yourself spread amongst these things. You hide a little bit of yourself in a song or in a smell or in a scent or, a, or in a movie and you come back and you're like, I've dispersed myself <laughs> in my memories all throughout this library of things. Yes. For better or worse, but there are those things I think we, those special bits of art that we come back to. Like for me reading, it's always a spy who came in from the cold. Yes. I don't know why. I just, maybe I read it at a, an age where it just hit me and it stuck. And yes. I, or American Tabloid from James Elroy. Yes. Same thing. I just, there was a thing. And they're those books that you can, or Kitchen Confidential from Bourdain. Yes. They, can, they were sort of the ultimate toilet books before <laughs> we were on our phones all the time when we were on the toilet. You just have the book there and you could just open it at any page and start just, reading. Just start, yeah. And you go, cool, I'll drop me in anywhere and I'll be, uh, I'll be absorbed once more. And I think, no, it's special. And it's special that this show has been about, like, there's nothing better than something positive in the sort of, like, critical universe at the moment. Yes. Because like, you've been critical of this at times not not too critical of heat like I, th- I think you have to be fair yeah. you have to be fair and understand people's perspectives i think the thing you can't the, the great thing about criticism like legitimate criticism whether it's formal whether it's you know your impression of a performance or a camera choice or just you're, you're criticizing a choice essentially yeah. a, a performance choice a, a, um, a special effects choice or whatever there's been times you can be critical um but then ultimately what you have to do is you have to weigh it up in the in the grand scheme of a film, because it's a singular entity. It's not like a TV show where you can go like, hey, here's Game of Thrones, it's eight seasons, but God damn, that Red Wedding episode was masterful. Like, yeah, like you yeah. know, you can just cherry pick a, an element. And I can't disagree with people loving other things more, even other Michael Mann movies more, even yeah. other Pacino movies more, yeah. and De Niro movies more. And so you can find gaps where people are like, no, it just doesn't jive with me. And there's sort of that inarguable, like subjective perspective thing where people go, look, it just doesn't jive with me. But I think what you can do, there are certain pieces of art that are sort of undeniable. And it's like, I think that's the premise of what Rotten Tomatoes eventually wanted to do with like things that are 100% fresh, you know, that concept yeah, of like, yeah. or like things that are universally loved, like on Metacritic, when you see things that get like a, out of all of the wonderful critics that are selected to nominate on Metacritic, like they get like a 9.6 out of 10 and mm. you're like, Shit, this movie must be worthwhile. Yeah, it must be worth your time. It must as be a, as a currency. As a currency, yeah. it must be worth your time. Even if you don't love it, even if it doesn't exactly jive with you, it has to be but it, I worth think your you've time. You've pushed through from the love because we have the internet rules of either love or hate. Yes, it's, it has to be the best or the worst, or we just burn it down and start a petition <laughs> to rewrite it. But I think the important thing with this, you 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 hit that level with heat, and I hit it with certain things. Is like. You now move to the why. 
Yeah. Why do I not like it? Why? Or you start looking at a painting and go, I'm drawn to this. I don't know. I don't know anything about art. I don't know anything about strokes. I don't even know about like who's done it. Yeah. There's something in this that's drawing me in. Yeah. Why? What's it saying about me? And what tricks are being done? So when you start to look at something like heat, you're like, all right, why does this scene work? Because the camera's where? Why is it there? Why was that choice made? And that's when you start to go why, down. Why is, why is Pacino chosen that slouch? Yeah. And it might not be <laughs> these weren't, we attach conscious yeah. decisions. Yes. And then we go, all right, you never, like, I've heard um, Kevin Pollock say about the blueberry muffin scene in um, a Casino, shooting that with De Niro, 37 takes. And at the end, he's like, after three takes, I can hear myself acting. And I just, I hate it. But De Niro and Scorsese are getting off on it, going, more of this, more of that, more, and constantly tinkering. Yes. And that's the obsessiveness that they bring to the screen. Who knows which version ended up in the, in the actual <laughs> final edit. Yes. But all those decisions went on behind the scenes before we even get to the product. And all we get left is the, is the why. Why am I coming back? Why am I coming for another? And, and then you have every minute that you've been breaking down maybe forms that why or maybe it doesn't I don't know it's a, it's a fascinating thing of breaking something down like so many times I've told people about the concept of this show and they're like is there anything any, anything to talk about and I'm like <laughs> is there anything like, there's it's there's just, it's just, it's just, I, for people not listening uh, like I felt Stu's fists clench <laughs> like sorry what <laughs> but there is, you're fighting on my behalf there are so many decisions. I go, you break down a minute of neighbours. There'll be decisions. It might not be high art, but there'll be decisions made along the way. And maybe that's just what we've, where we've come to. So, no, but that's... What, what have you taken from this experience? We're at the tail end. What have, what's it been for you? It's been really... Um, I think there's... You, you, you hit a little bit on it before, which is that cinema at the moment, especially because of like the amount of consumption that people can do and the access that we have and the like the transience of things. Like there are so many movies and so much T V and there's so much fucking inverted commas content. Yep. The world's worse. The wor- yeah, w- yeah. And Matt, and and one of the great guests of this show, Matt Zolazites, just unpacked the living daylights out of that term very recently. So if you haven't had a chance, seek it out. I'll I'll attach it um in this episode descriptor, just talking about content as a as a as a premise. But I think that that celebrating and unpacking something that you love and applying a level of scrutiny and care to it, like there are certain points of art that I feel like it's that should be the distinction like you know for me there have been a few filmmakers and like Guillermo del Toro is one who talks about adding like great criticism adds to the art and like Roger Ebert used to have my favorite quote of all time and actually Walter Chaw who's been a guest on this show talked about it very recently on Twitter it's like when the movie's over we still have work to do if we're real critics and so I think that what has been so awesome about this is literally being able to apply almost like a different lens. It's like being at an optometrist and like finding your right prescription. Yeah. It's yeah. like you're going through and I get to sit here and just literally facilitate the different great lenses and appeals on that and also just have different takes. Like I feel enriched by multiple takes, whereas like like you said before, it's like love, hate, they're the takes. Move on, move on. Move, we got move it. on. Yeah. There's not... And 
for most movies, big movies, there's like, you know, let's just even talk about Rotten Tomatoes. For most big movies, like an Avengers or something like that, there are 300 reviews yeah. by critics, approved critics. And whatever you may think of that, you know, people have made their way into film societies. People have had huge, you know, uptakes, the top critics. People have, like, great cinephiles in film minds, and I just feel enriched by this. I just feel like, you know, um, yeah, I just feel enriched by it. And I feel like it's the ultimate way to to appreciate something that you love in this format. But more than that, it's been a great way to contend with people's different opinions in a really, like, great spot, a space. Like, it's a safe space, this show. Yeah, like, yeah. It's not like, like, I don't care, if, like, I I don't care if people, do, like, you know, 90th episode was our live episode of Sydney Film Festival. Stu, you were there. Yeah, I was. The, the, one of the guests, who is Maria Lewis, who's a dear friend of mine, she doesn't like this movie. No, no. <laughs> and it was the live show. I should have... And I, for valid reasons. Valid reasons. She doesn't like it. She yeah. doesn't like it. And... I was like okay with that. I was okay with the conversation, and there have been plenty of people along the way. Like sometimes they go, uh, "Blake, I'm just want to let you know, I'm not like, I'm not a big fan of this movie, or this isn't my favorite Michael Mann movie, or whatever." And I'm like, "Great, like just let's be here, let's tangle with this movie." Yeah, but let's- you're not here. You're not getting invited on for a loving. No, like you don't want someone to go. It wasn't cool when you did this because no. then you're. Then There's you're the- two things I didn't want this show to be. Number one, and this is, and look, I mean this with with all respect to. To, to cast and to shows and to people who've undertaken this kind of analysis before. The one thing I didn't want it to be was too repetitive. And I know that like even John Glenn, who you would have heard as part of this episode has like made me chuckle at like certain anecdotes that he's heard again and again. And it happens. And I'm sorry guys, this is like 160 odd episodes in. So you would know a few things that I say and repeat, but I didn't want it to be too repetitious of perspective, which is why I've been so loving about the great guests that come on the show and like inject something new, their their energy, their love, their perspective. And the the other thing I didn't want it just to be exclusively all love. I didn't want it to be too gushy because it's a great movie, but sometimes I think people find that it is a great movie when we talk about it. Yeah. But it's and I don't think it has been. I think as I've been here for the whole I don't think it has been. No. Because everyone's come to it at such different times. You've got people that watched it opening weekend. You've got people that discovered it for this show. Yeah. You've got people that don't care for De Niro. People that think like certain things are overrated, that Michael Mann doesn't talk to them. But then other people, it's, it's been such a unique perspective. Yeah. Um, which has been fun to see all those people come together. And it has to be the right amount of art that can live up to the scrutiny. Because my problem at the moment is distributor invites the 400 bloggers to a movie people write about it and then it sort of elevates something that doesn't deserve to be in the conversation. <laughs> yes. Being brought into the conversation then debated by people and you're going, I'm not sure if the merits were there to begin with because not every <laughs> not every bit of content, as it were, demands the right to be spoken about. Yeah. And this is maybe a thing that we should only really be reviewing films at the five-year mark. Yeah. Like, or returning to something to see... If it has stood the test of time, even a a short period. Anthony Lane says something. uh, He's the film critic for The New Yorker. um, Most recently came under a lot of scrutiny for writing about his thirst for Mrs. Incredible, which I think a lot of people, if you don't know the name Anthony Lane, you might recognize that. He used to say two things. He'd say, I'm either seeing the movie opening weekend and immediately filing a review for it, as in like immediate impressions, because it gives you... 
I guess, you know, the, the, the reflective thing that we can have is like, what is the historical feeling of movies in culture in that point in time? Because when you reflect on old reviews, you can sort of get a feeling for yeah. politics and social stuff and what's happening in the world and, and whether people like elevate things or deflate things based on like what's happening in society at that time or like, the, you know, even this, the socioeconomic makeup of like reviewers and stuff like that. And he goes, or... Don't ever write about it until ten years after it's released. Yeah, exactly. Like his 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 thing was like for immediately immediate responses or ten years. Yeah, because then that is the clear delineator between like is this worth your time or is it garbage? Because it's the same way that you or I would have come to films at a young age. Yes, we were given them by an older person who said these are the, the thing. Movies. These are the mo- <laughs> like for yeah. better or worse. Time has proven that this is, I'm going to hand you, this is a catalogue that I've put together and I'm going to put you on a certain road from a certain age. Yeah. We're sitting in my office right now. I'm building building the road for my kids behind me. Exactly. And then we branched out from there. It's just now that we will own, like, your family and and mine will have 700 Blu-rays to pick from, not the seven VHS that I grew up with. Um, But they're those sort of things that go... What merits being spoken about? And I always say, like, I had a thing on uh, just seeing Aladdin. And I was, like, seeing people go, no, it was fun. Go out and see it. And I went, what you've got to ask yourself if you're that immediate reviewer, if you're the, is going more of a customer service, a uh, customer, like, um, product reviewer going, is this worth your $22? That's it. Yeah. That's, we're not even going to debate whether it's art yet. <laughs> whether or not you need to, like, as a gatekeeper, whether it's needing to be seen, which... It's something I've always wrestled with going, what is those initial reviews for? Like if it's if you're not going to talk plot details. And that's why I prefer a project I, I, like this where you're getting like you're getting the flashlight out and you're getting up in every nook and cranny yeah. sort of seeing what's there, seeing how it's wired, seeing what's behind the what's what builds the house. You're going you're tearing things out and <laughs> which is great seeing it. If heat at the end looks like Gene Hackman's apartment in the conversation yeah. and I'm the guy in the corner <laughs> Playing the sax, <laughs> playing the sax. That's 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 my vision for this show. Which it should be, because that's what yeah, or just like completely dismantling the car and having it just out everywhere. Like it, that's a, I think that's a perfect analogy. That's, the saxophone in the corner. Is he naked as well? Or he's like, or he's or definitely just, not wearing shoes. No, so. he's wearing. A, I think he's wearing a tattered singlet, and he's got he's got his trousers on, but he doesn't have a belt. And that's the thing. Like, well, maybe it's you going to be after this because you're still going to be scratching that itch to want to go back in there. So. No, nah, look, it's so weird. It's so weird. You know, a couple of people have said, and I think even you facetiously like when people have asked am I going to keep doing it and you're like uh, Stu's answer at the pub is like oh yeah he's just going around the horn he's just going around again I'm like shut the fuck up I am not going around the horn don't tease me (laughs) don't tempt me I'll come back Uh, but it's just one of those things where yeah I I I feel really you know it's so weird right now because we haven't even gotten to the minute we're going to watch the minute you guys would have heard it three times Um, but like when I recorded the 165th minute, so the pr- like the, the penultimate minute of the movie with Travis Woods, and I was sitting down and we were recording over Skype and we watched the minute together. That minute, like, nearly crippled. Like, that watching that minute with Travis and then realizing the gravity of getting to the end of this project was, and hopefully for you guys, you enjoyed listening, but it was like that was one of the 
one of the very special moments for me because I actually got to appreciate the gravity of like, I've almost made it to the end of this. Yeah, we're (laughs) we're in striking distance. Like, I cannot even fathom when I look back at the incredible people I've gotten to talk to and unpack this with. I just can't even fathom it. And so, yeah, I don't have a... I can tell Yannick, I have no desire to keep doing... Like, to keep, you know, doing this show, to keep, like, unpacking things, uh, like, on this. And even with Michael Mann, like, I've said, you know, anyone who's out there listening, if you're doing a Michael Mann series or show or whatever, I'd love to be a guest if you want someone to come on and talk heat. Um, but I really don't need to be the guy who does Miami Vice next. Like, no, I couldn't, no, I couldn't, no, no, I couldn't no, do no. it. It feels like it's... It feels like I'm, I'm treading on someone's sacred territory. And also, one thing I've learned is that, like, everyone has a heat... This one is mine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like some people might have, and for some people it might be the jackal. Yeah. <laughs> and for some people it might be Jaws, and some people it might be, even in the Michael Manoeuvre, it might be Thief, or it might be Lawrence of Arabia, or it might be Abbas Kiarostami's close-up, or it might be, you know, uh, uh, you know, Breathless. And uh, they're all valid. Everyone they're is valid. All valid. If they're, they're all, yours, yeah. they're valid. And you can find peeling away layer after layer and it just becomes an, an insatiable desire to do it. Um, everyone has them. Um, and I think, you know, if you have that movie and you and I think a lot of the listeners of this show who are voraciously listening, um, this is their that. And I just hope that we've been able to, like you said, I hope at the end they feel like I'm Gene Hackman <laughs> in the but corner it, of the conversation. And before we just jump into the minute it's informed my viewing of this film now we've caught it i've seen it twice in the cinemas since you've started the show we did the 4k and then and we did we, the other th- day 35, the 35 mil 35 mil and while i'm watching it i'm hearing the conversation from the show over those minutes which yeah. and just l- the tidbits and the and the guests and the perspectives as i'm watching it and yeah. that was an absolute joy to experience again just uh, just those memories laid on over top. I, which it's was so funny that you say that. Is because I had the same experience. Yeah, I had this weird like talking to myself in my mind, where I'm watching, and like little tidbits come up, like when when Michael Madsen looks at the guy in the cafe at the beginning, I hear Oscar Hillstrom go, and Michael Madsen walked off set, coked up, flew yeah. in a plane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like that comes up in my head and it goes through and then I hear like Stephen Russell like as we're driving through the empty drive-in talking about how it's post-apocalyptic and Lynch and then just funny uh, when I know, see thick Henry Rollins thick Henry Rollins Katie Walsh, Katie Walsh. <laughs> when Manola Dargis talks about you know Pacino as Garbo when Bill Ibiri um, when Bill Ibiri said you know his, his, his ethos is to when he leave when he spots the heat coming around the corner he's fucking having a coffee yeah. with him <laughs> you know, there's just certain moments like that Nick James like Nick James ex- uh, describing in great detail the exact facial movements um, uh, that were undertaken in that scene like there's those moments that are sprinkled that, yeah. through the whole yeah. series and, and that's what's you know when some people are like you ever going to watch it again I'm like yeah yeah because it's a really good movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. I love it. And I love putting it on. <laughs> like, it's... Like, and if it's on the... T- if it's on, like... I, I don't think it's on Australian Netflix. I think it's on US. It's definitely on Amazon Prime in yeah, Australia yeah, if you is. want to check it out. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, when it's on, I have to stop. But, like, people say to you, they go... Because, you know, I see a couple of movies a week in the cinema and they're like, oh, another movie. Don't you ever get bored? I'm like, no, because it's going on the movies. <laughs> it's like someone saying, do you ever get bored watching a game of football? Yeah, no, because it's watching football. Yeah, so like, I, I like to do it. Never get bored of eating pizza. 
No. Because it's pizza. <laughs> like, it's it's the thing you... Like, it's pizza. Like, it's not... It's not an arduous task. Sometimes it's better than other times. Yeah, sometimes But it's still it's pizza. It's great. Yeah. It's still so, fun. Though so I'll watch this. Some of the funnest times also are movies that are garbage. Sure. But it's still... They're still fun. Still so fun. it's still like... Especially if you go with someone fun. Yeah. If you sit there and just have a, have a laugh. Except if you're talking in John Wick 3. Then I will snap and Oh, you, you, d- you deservedly need to snap. Anyway. See, you and Joel sitting up the back. <laughs> you should have come close. Oh, man. Well, you know what? I'm going to surprise you. Okay. You did the first three minutes of this movie with me. Yep. We're not just going to watch the final minute. Okay. We're going to go off the fucking reservation. <laughs> right, my man. <laughs> We're going to warm up. We're going to let you We're guys- watching a Clockwork Orange. Wait. Oh, my God, great. <laughs> a lot- Clear my schedule. <laughs> No, we're not watching Clockwork Orange. But we're going to watch the final three minutes of the movie together. And we can unpack those three because we're going to talk about those three. We're going to watch the final three minutes. This is going to be a little special extended couple of minute treat for you folks listening. We're going to do that and then we're going to come back and talk about
There it is. Now, my only criticism. <laughs> that being said, my only, I love the final staging. Like, yeah. I love that we end up near the cargo, all the cargo stuff and the lights. And I don't know if you touched on this on the minute before this, how we get there. Yeah. It always It's the only thing in this movie that irks me after multiple watches is that De Niro jumps the fence. Yeah. And then it's Pacino... There's a, it feels like a deleted scene because like, then Pacino jumps the fence and starts running past the hangar. But the last we saw of Pacino, he's down near um, Edie when he, takes the, when he takes the shotgun. That's my only real issue. But this, this is a final set a piece is so tense. Unbelievably and it, tense. And for a film known for its gunplay, has the discipline to take most of the guns. Like there's a few pot shots at each other in the dark going back and forth. But yeah. I'm glad it wasn't a knockdown, like no. clips getting reloaded and like ting, 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 ting like back at each other. Um, yeah, is it the last time you can shoot like that next to an airport post uh, I think now in 2019, we're kind of almost 25 years after, I think we you can shoot in some airports. Yeah. Maybe an LA or a Heathrow or a... Sydney or those big airports, Singapore, you've probably got Buckley's, you know, those sort of airport hubs that are around the world, you've probably got Buckley's, but there's probably airports you can shoot in, but absolutely correct that you could not shoot like this for many, many, many years after this. And I come down there on, it's weird who would actually, the like Pacino putting his hand out, sorry, um, De Niro putting his hand out, it's the, the, the end I, I just it hit me again on this watch is that it feels more significant to him. Now you watch Pacino do it. Pacino grabs his hand, but the body language is he's not really there. In, like, I don't think he cares. Like, he's, he's like, job's done. It, it's a weird thing. He's looking out to the horizon and maybe there's a little bit like, what's tomorrow look like? Yeah. What's my life now? Yeah. One's in the bag. But... Also, he knows that the job is going to save him. Like, he's going to wake up in the morning in that hotel room and he's going to start unpacking this crime scene and then the next thing will come along and it'll just keep going and going. And I, I, I think that Neil's death, his code is his demise. And the challenge for Vincent is that his code and his programming is his salvation. Mm. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the weight of connecting with Neil's hands, because the, you know, the actual minute that we kicked off with is Vincent already processing, processing the weight of that hand clasp and going, I've defeated my greatest foe. I, my programming worked. <laughs> my yeah. instincts worked. Yeah. My my everything worked. But here I am holding the nursing my greatest foe to his demise in this wasteland. And no one's around to see it. There no one's around to he's they appreciate are, it. No it's like it's like the two imagine it's like doing a moonwalk. You know, like there's one other guy on that planet yeah. <laughs> with you yeah. at that time. Yeah. And then that person dies and you're there by yourself. The crippling weight of being 
alone. Yeah, and it's weird. Like, I, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned that I'm in the police on this show. Like, it's not that it's a state secret. But I remember a couple of years ago we had a talk from our police commissioner at this like at this like um, like a conference day we were having, and he said like I appreciate you're going to have those days where there's little high five moments and no one's around to give you the high five. Yeah. Like you're going to do something in your job that you'll turn around and go, did anyone see what I just did? No, no one will appreciate. He goes, he goes, look, we appreciate it. Even though there's not someone there to be that high five moment, but just take like some solace from the fact that you have achieved something. Yes. And in that sort of thing there, you're like, no one's ever going to like tell the tale of how Vincent caught him. Like, no one's ever going to... Like, there'll be a, a police report that he knocks up. I encountered him. We exchanged gunshots. It's going to be so cold. He drew down on me. I shot him. He was deceased at 11.10pm. Like, that's all. <laughs> like, that's what it's going to like... That's all this... This whole mayhem of these couple of... Of this week is just going to, like, get put in a little grey folder... Packed away somewhere in a book, in a in a in a storage facility. Um, Top man. But I wonder if he felt this way, because it's actually funny when you think about Vincent. He blew away the guy in Chicago. Yeah. It's like how to make a good case? Just kill them. (laughs) (laughs) No strings. (laughs) It's close the door. It's not going. We're not going for a protracted court case. And he was a fucking maniac. Yeah, he was a maniac. According to Nate, he was a fucking maniac. But it's a. The lights are very interesting in this. It's sort of that, that pure light that's streaming through. Mm. It's, and I don't know, it's sort of, I, I am and are between whether I like the, the look of it. Sometimes it looks like they're on a soundstage. Yeah. Like sometimes it looks like it's... Being manufactured because it's so perfect. Yeah, it looks like it's on a, yeah. like, uh, it looks like a blue screen. Yes. And when it pops up and it looks sort of like overly digital... When it's not. I mean, it looked great on the 35mm. 35mm looked unbelievably beautiful. On that 4K, it looked all right, but it sometimes looked a little too nice. Like, it actually looked like we were getting sort of a, like a rear projection sort of shot. Um, That's my only, like... Technical gripe. Yeah. You know what I noticed in this one? Because you're here. Is we talk about the opening of the film is lights and a train coming. Yeah. And there's just this, like, two-second moment in the preceding minute to you which I definitely know I didn't mention to Travis, which is like Vincent coming into the lights more prona- in a more pronounced way that are lighting Neil so heavily. Like he's flooded with light yep. and Vincent's still sort of semi-shrouded in darkness because the lights are sort of slowly tempering down mm-hmm. um, to their sort of static state. And when Vincent comes into the lights and there's still lights flickering in the background, it just, for me, just echoed that inevitability of a train. Like, there's something so inevitable about a train mm. and the tracks. Yep. The train is on the tracks and it's a coming. And it's only going and it can it's only, only go one way. It can way. only go one way. Yeah. It can only go one yeah. way. And when I watched him emerge out just now, I was just like, shit, that's, you know, Vincent's the train. The train of this movie is Vincent. Yeah. The heat, as it is, were. Like, heat. Yeah. It, but he's, he's, he is... And he's proven to be a more or less unstoppable force. Yeah. And? Oh, I know. Absolutely stoppable. Except except with the fact that Neil's programming... Again, their alignment of their programming, the similarity is actually Neil's fall, fall down. Mm. Like, like fallout. Because Vincent kind of knows him well enough to tempt him. And Neil... 
caves into his impulses to follow this program um, or, or, to, or to go against his program in some ways because he's like, if, if Neil did the thing that he's been preaching the entire movie, which is get out when you spot the heat coming around the corner, like he never does the next heist. He never does... Well, Never he walks next, away after the jewel, after the, the, the jewel heist. heist is the gone. Me, or after the medals. After the medals, he's gone. They doesn't, just evacuate. They drop all the cars. They go to. They move to a new city. Yeah. So does he deserve? Does he deserve his ending? Yeah, I think the movie, in a way, says that Neil is like. I think Michael Mann has put it so great. Sometimes it's like the artifice of this, or the the art, the artistry. Sorry, not the artifice, but the artistry of of the construction of Neil's character is that any time either Neil or Vincent, Al or Robert, Bobby, are on screen, you empathize with them. Yeah. Even when they're doing questionable shit. Yeah. For Neil, it is out and out bad stuff. Yeah. And for Vincent, it's he's not the nicest guy in the entire world, um, but he gets his job done. And that competency porn, I think, has been coined on this show. We just... We just where insa- anyone who's listening to this show and loves this movie has an insatiable desire for that competence point, so we love it. But I think that, I think that his demise is almost deserved. Like we don't get the, 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 the bursting of satisfaction, the dopamine dump of Wayne Grow getting a shot in the head. Yeah. But we also know that Neil's choices, even from the second that he does it in the tunnel, like there been there were many turning point moments, but that tunnel moment when he makes that choice. He makes the choice between death and life. And that's the majesty of even that tunnel sequence. Or the risk, the risk reward. Risk reward. Death like, life. Same thing he says. Is it worth it? Why he doesn't walk away in the first place? Like, for me, the risk is enough. When, he's got the, when they're breaking down the four of them yeah. and saying, for me, it's enough. <laughs> I for still me, love that scene. I yeah. love that scene. Firstly, love it because Val Kilmer shows that he's just one of the greatest, most intense presences. Yeah, that's with not doing much. Not doing much. Like, I don't need, does he even have a line? He's yeah. like, I'm with you. Now he, he goes, I need a brother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah He's yeah. like, I need yeah. a brother. He gives the explanation. He goes, and then I'm, I'm out. Yeah. He tries to convince Michael not to do it. You know, action is the juice. Action is the juice. And then Treya. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Shrug of the shoulder. But it's just, it's an interesting thing. We've had the like, the look at sort of the, the highway men on Netflix and sort of doing the Bonnie and Clyde. And now this yep. was sort of the, the state hitting back and, you know, sort of, the other side to sort of gun crime. Yes. And looking at, you know, that tough, that American sort of tough on the law and all that really rigid sort of like, you do badness, the lawman will come in and shoot you. Yes. And I'm not sure how we're meant to feel about that if it's like, well, that's what happens. Like, it's not preaching, like, caught in a trap, used his greed against him, caught him, put him through due process. Like, what's the more satisfying ending where he... He gets captured, he gets handcuffed, and it's him getting put in the back of a paddy wagon and getting taken away. And then he, you know, not saying but we that's need the tra- that's the tragedy is that Neil's institutionalize like Neil's institutionalization means that he flat out he would rather die. That's what makes him so dangerous, and that's what makes him so edgy, and that's what gives him that allure. I think that mag- magnetism that we love so much in this movie is. He's uncompromising that he is never going back in a cage. Yeah, but and he then, will die before doing it. But then Vincent is equally institutionalized. Yes, the other way. Oh, absolutely. He's always he's always chasing these guys around the block. Yeah. So he's then bound by that same code of ethics, as it were, that he's not bringing you in. Yeah. So he's met in it, it. 
because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to kill them. He doesn't want to. I don't know. Like it, it, it's sort of hard to. It's hard to say. Well, especially in the first heist, he just wants to catch them. He wants to come up on them and drop the SWAT teams and get them all and catch them. Once the bank heist is going down, they're like, "Watch your backgrounds. Try and corral them down into this cot thing." The minute that that, the minute that Kilmer pulls that automatic weapon, oh, it's a free for all. It's a free for all. But also, it's just an interesting, like it's an interesting take when they said, "We're not taking them in." And as you've brought up, we're we're not taking them as the the AFP officer said. If he's in charge, he takes them off the street for the six months. Hundred percent. Then you rebuild, you release them from jail. You're putting a tail on them. Then they're easier to track once they're released. They can't. You'll see where they pop up, or at least you disrupt. Well, at least network. you know where they are. So yeah. if you know that Neil is coming out and he's he's landing and he's got um, he's got parole or whatever in Chicago. But I guess he says, like, I wonder what the difference is. I know it's an armed robbery because they're taking. And he goes, we'll have to take them in the car. So they're going to get them caught in the act. So I guess they're happy. That has its own meaning. We'll take them is that we're doing a high-risk arrest and shots may be fired because everyone's, everyone's ready for the dance party when they turn up. But it's just an interesting Val thing. Val Gilmer of, is the fucking dance exactly. party. <laughs> but it's like DJ. In more ways than one. DJ Chris. <laughs> but it's like that weird thing of like, are we happy when he kills him? Because it is a sort of, no. a, it's a self-defense kind of thing. It's, but is it a... It's, I think we just know that one man is leaving. And in the end, we... It's Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> Two men enter, one man leave, and we are good with that. Yeah, but and maybe it's just a sad... It's just a sad reality that... And maybe that look that sort of Vincent has off into the distance, he's like... All right. That is the movie. It's another... That look for me is the verification that Al Pacino is in the conversation of greatest actor ever. Because he... It could be punishment. It could be simple. It could be like, I got my guy. It could be all those things that we've seen in all the movies. But he has no satisfaction whatsoever. No, because he's out looking to the horizon for what's the next one. Like I don't even think it's what's the next one. It's like, what? what is my life? I think it's all, what's the next one could be one of the many torrent of waves that are going across his face. It's like, what the fuck do I do now? And he's good and wired there as well. He's not frantic. No. But he's so, I like the way how he sort of, like he, how he comes up after the shot and he sort of just, he's got a smooth walk on him when he's sort of, he's assessing, he's making sure he's giving him time probably to die. Because yeah. he's like making sure he's not going, and I'm love I love the restraint that they showed that at no time does Neil try to... Like, a lesser storyteller would have had him ah, trying... Yeah, like it would have... his armor. Would, ah. would have been trying to, like, edge another shot off. But I love that and he's the like... De- and the delicacy of Neil's hand. He's, he, moves, he, he moves his... I think it's his uh, index finger and his middle finger on his thumb when he raises his hand, as in, like... But what's that? What, for you, is that what he's saying... I'm sorry. I'm saying, don't let me die alone because it goes I, against everything that Neil is. I, I think that Neil, in that moment, I think that Neil, in that moment, when he's caught by Vincent, and especially when they're appraised, when they're appraising one another and they're looking at each other, like Neil, I think it all triggers from just the moment he sees Edie. So if we call back to that moment, when he sees Edie. And then that something, you know, when someone's watching you, yeah. what's that like? You know, yeah. people joke about it as the sixth sense or whatever. That that instinct that maybe in our like reptilian brain, where you feel like there's an animal that's like yep. watching you. Yep. 
there's that moment that he has and he goes reptilian brain there's Vincent and the shock on his face is like it's kind of it doesn't quite go to this motherfucker but it's like this fucking like yeah 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 he's yeah, here yeah. yeah and so the entire i think the entire pursuit is that that amazing wrestle between like these guys these two mirrors like we've that we've been face to face in the middle of the movie They've manifested their destiny of that conversation. And I think that in that moment, he's like, there are no other two people in the universe that are more alike than those two. Yeah. Because for him to guess that Neil will do that, to put him in that place, to remember the detail about, I have a woman, like, sitting in that car and knowing that that's the spot that he would be. And he sees what doesn't make sense. And he sees what doesn't like, make sense. He sees the thing that's like, hang on. Yeah, he see, that's for Vincent. He sees what it doesn't make sense and then he sees the woman silhouette yeah. and he's like, that's the thing that doesn't make sense. He has a woman. And so I think in that moment, it's like an acknowledgement. It's it's the most, it's like a very cool, you know, you can talk about it in terms of like Kurosawa samurai movies. You can talk about it in terms of, uh, you know, a, a, a good a good face off in a, in a great, you know, John Wayne cowboy movie mm. or like, a, or, or, or even, a, you know, like a John Ford, you know, Michael Mann is a, an absolute uh, 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 uber fan of My Darling Clementine. Um, John Ford's masterpiece. Um, I just think that in that moment there aren't two any other people, two other people that are more alike in the entire universe. Yeah, and I think it'll maybe. And so when he puts his hand up, it's like in this moment, this is my acknowledgement. Like this is an acknowledgement moment. There's no one else alike. I'm not going back. And it's like there's a respect. There's just that. There's both respect and there's just this, like, I just want to be energized with the connection to something, to someone in this world for just one fleeting, futile second. And Neil's code is bullshit for the most part because he has to repress every emotion which goes against what we are as humans. Yes. Whereas Vincent leans into his... Leans into his. ...to an excess, but at least, like... Even in the fa- even in the even the dinosaur scene when he's like, you know, I've got a wife. It's you know, down my third, all this sort of stuff. He's like, I'm living a life. I'm ghost walking through it, yes. but I've got connections, whether or not what I do with them. Whereas Neil has spent his entire life sniffing out people and everything's a threat, and not and sort of bottling himself up. Yes. I think at the end, when you're like your life force is dra- dra- like draining out of you, he has to be like. I, I think it's natural to say, don't let me die alone. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's almost like Reservoir Dogs when um, thing I shot in the gut. And it's like, there's that thing of like, I don't, I don't want to go like this. I don't, like you go back to some scared and, thing and, and you want just that human touch. And, the, and, the, and there's also, you know, the other movie that I have talked about definitely on the show, and I'll just repeat it for folks who this is, a, a, you didn't get to hear it or you missed it is, Joe Carnahan's The Grey, which is one of my favorite movies. I absolutely adore it. There's an amazing scene where someone is really fucking badly injured from a plane crash and they're sitting there and they realize, you know, that this person's going to die and they're holding on to him and they watch and feel him slip away. Yeah. And I think that there's something about the compassion to just be with someone when they know there's nothing left. Yeah. And I think then, that that's a, that's a human moment 
And I don't think that these guys have ever denounced their humanity, but Neil's definitely tried to file his down. Yeah, well... and, and He's tried he, to grind it down into nothing. That whole compartmentalise his sort of life, and you just can't. And that's why I think it's interesting, just looking at the way they framed where uh, Vincent is standing side-on, got the arm out, and he's standing just sort of... I'll be here. It's the most gorgeous framing. But he's not leaning in going... He's not embracing it. Yeah, he's not going, it'll be all right. He's like, I'll be here. I'm here. In a similar way to how he hugs the prostitute's mother when she turns up. There's more empathy and love in that hug, that embrace. And that embrace. But he does grab her and is going, look, I can, in this moment, I will be something you need. I will be a thing that just gives you the contact that you want. Yeah. Ironically, he couldn't give his own wife. Like what? Just saying. Yeah, because that and that he was living in this world where uh, he didn't do that because he was all for the job, and that was the great. That, that's the sad reality of him just chasing these baddies. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think it's a fitting. It's a. It's, it's the most fitting ending. Absolutely. Thematically, and actually, the, the staging for them to be left somehow. So interesting a way to go all right out of the chaos of the hotel how do we find a battleground for these combatants to to go against each other really in one of the most populated probably places in the u.s there are more people in la than there are in australia yeah and how (laughs) do you find a moment where they can duke it out as it were and what's interesting is how many like lax how many planes are going overhead completely oblivious to what's happening on the ground. Like, mm-hmm. the world is moving on around them. The world, yeah. everything's happening. Everything's happening around And just around these them. two have gone into that super slow motion of their lives, which I like that as well, like the heightened senses. And this sort of comes back to if, you know, Vincent is using coke and whatnot when he's so amped up here that he probably would pick up, the adrenaline's there that he would pick up the shadow. Yeah. He would pick up anything, like he saw Edie. Like he picks up those little. I think both of them would. There's such. There's this great moment, and, I, and I'm. I, I struggle to find words to do it other than like you know flexing or like trying to intimidate. But there's a couple of moments where they both feel like they hear a sound and they psych themselves up. Yeah, because you're corner, just going. You're just going go, at they it. Go, huh, 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 and they go look around the corner, and there's nothing there. Yeah. And so I, they're both in this like crazy height and set. And then when Neil catches a flicker in the distance, you're like, oh shit, he caught it. And I do, I think De Niro does the gunplay, like even just when he's sort of yes. got the gun up. He looks great doing it. He does. Um, Pacino with that the pearl-handled gun coming out. <laughs> Sean he's such, such the cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> the swagger. The, uh, well, all right, cowboy. That's one of my favorite, favorite, <laughs> favorite point outs from this entire series. It just makes me laugh. Every pearl-handled anything I see in any movie, I just fucking die laughing. Thank you, Sean Burns. You're amazing, it is. man. And the and again the discipline to when to sweep up the music, I think is yeah. is great. Like as Neil's like the, the the overhead shot, yeah. it triggers on yeah. the amazing yeah. because this movie has been so amazing uh, about keeping the geography of the action and movement so in the place. And this yeah. little topographical shot that like assays the the situation because yep. you imagine that that shot's super difficult to get in 95 there's yep. no drones you can't just fire up a drone yeah. super quickly or yeah. anything like that you got to stage a crane or whatever and you got to get it up there really quickly before the planes are coming over yeah. here because it's a hazard yeah and so that one appraisal shot 
is just so uh, gives us what we need. Gives us what we need to see the distance and how close they were to just sort of give us that that understanding, and then it just it starts to tinkle in. And that's the strength. Of, that's the strength of man as well. Of constantly updating the viewer where you are and and what your perspective is. Yeah, does it from the from the first heist onwards. Oh yeah, and even in the sort of the the more dramatic scenes, he's still giving us a when and a where and a why at all times, which is and he follows it through. It's, it's so it's I have beautiful. to ask you a question. Yeah, how do you feel that a drunken conversation at Sydney <laughs> Film Festival <laughs> resulted? In this, especially when we're on the eve of <laughs> we're on the, the eve of the, the new Sydney Film Festival. No, but I think this is like yeah. As I said the last time I was here, I did doubt you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. I, it wasn't no. No, I. This is what I was trying to tap into in some weird way. Like we all run around on the interwebs writing these reviews that no one reads, and we and we all have this thing where we go, "Hey, what do you think of that movie?" And you go, "My fucker, I wrote." 600 words on it. Why don't you read that? Oh, I'm not going to read it. I don't know. That's for the burbs. I don't know who reads. I don't know who's reading. Just tell me if you like the movie or not. Yeah, I did. And Or you could have read my review. Oh, cool. I don't, I don't know why we're doing that. I don't know why we... I think we do it out of some obligation because we get invitations from studios to go watch these things. So the fact that... That's why I was saying, what do you want to do? What do you want it to be about? Yeah. Like, where's your passion? That's what you were asking. Pretty much. You were saying, where is it? Yeah. And what, like... What's that thing? Because I don't think, like, you had other ideas of other projects you were kicking around at the time. Yeah. And I don't think you would have got the experience doing those... No way. ...that you're getting here. No way. Because you need to be on your own turf to an extent of something you love. And again, it's it's getting to the, the, the why do you love this thing. So it's like, why do I, why can I not look away? Well, let's find out. But let's no, I didn't think, I, I, I honestly, I, once you started and we all came down and we, and we sort of that first day when we, and we were like, wow, this is, this is a thing. Yeah. This is a, and then when you were like, cause it's, I've listened to all but three. I've still got three stored up to listen to. I've listened to your most recent with um, Jen um, there's a couple from the last two weeks I've missed, but you never don't hear the fun in your voice. No, I'm having fun. I've and, had a lot of fun. But then what in life changes, as I say, I, I think every time I've recorded an episode, we're in a new place. Yeah, well, now we're not going fucking anywhere. So, but this is, what, the ninth or tenth location that I've filmed, oh, sorry, mm. that we've recorded in. Yeah. And you have another child since we started. <laughs> yep. You have, like... But through all of that, through all these, not ups and, I wouldn't say there's been many ups and downs through this. There's been some trying periods. There's been some tough periods. I wouldn't yeah. say there's been, like, there's been this source of positivity along the way. And it's never come across anything from the outside world has never seeped into the show and said, look, I just, I'm just going to phone this one in. Like, no. it, everything is, feels fresh and feels exciting. And I think that's probably exactly what I kind of wanted it, you to do. Yes. Because it's your own thing now. This is something you've got, you know, you've, it's on the shelf. It's you go, you've, you've, that's why I like the idea of people doing like, you know, it's like anyone that runs a podcast. Like with my one, it's like, all right, how many more episodes are we going to do this? There's no, there's no definite ending. And yeah. there's the people that go, and you know, you see people like Film Spotting, Film Junk, that are like nearly up to like 700 episodes and they're just going to keep going until they don't. Yes. 
I like the idea of actually having the short, not that this has been a short run series, 160 <laughs> fucking seven episodes, <laughs> but like something where you've got an out that you can go, right, we've got a series, I'm going to knock it up. Like I think the, the, way, like, the way to do it is I like, do a 20 to 30 short run series, boom, move on to the next thing, boom. Yeah. Like don't stay bogged in with like, oh, I thought this movie was really good, but I can't talk about the spoilers, so go see it. And you're like, you're not an extension of the marketing here. Like no. a lot of reviews become. Yes. And I think that shows. It shows in your passion and your film knowledge has increased from doing this. Oh, like I look at the shelf. There's a shelf behind me. I'm just going to try and say on mic, but there's a shelf behind me of like, I'm reading, there's a, a stack of books that I'm reading at the moment because I'm just... Uh, the I, cat in the hat? I'm not sure that's... <laughs> that's not kind of... But oh, like, wait, you know, like Jordan Harper, you know, I'm reading Jordan Harper, she wrote Shotgun and Packerwood from Jedediah Ayers and, yeah. you know... Going back and researching the different guests that have been a part of the show, Reed Coleman, like diving into some of his catalogue, like, um, you know, Red, Red Nile Schwartz's amazing public enemies, uh, wonderful public enemies sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, exegesis that also ties into digital cinema existing and digital storytelling versus organic, you know, film storytelling. So, yeah, I feel like my film knowledge and just being pointed in right directions and also just how to appraise a movie and and... To go with, and this is what I think fundamentally great reviewers do, is there's two things. They really lean into the things that resonate with them and they ask why they resonate with them. Yeah. And I think that that's what you talk about is, you know, like um, even recently, you know, the 35th anniversary of um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is out um, on Film Freak Central um, with Bill Chambers, who's the editor, and, and Walter Chaw, who's one of the best film critics in the world, to my mind. Both of these guys are some of the most insightful film critics in the world you know Walter talks about his experience as you know an, an Asian American man growing up at a time when he went to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on the weekend and came back to school and the next weekend he was called Shorty for the next like year yeah like there's a and, and actually appraising the movie for what it is and his individual experience but also then the intent of the filmmakers and, and being able to talk about that going hey in these you know 1950 serials that Spielberg and Lucas are talking about there was this whole stupid Fu Manchu yellow peril thing and they were trying to emulate that and they weren't thinking necessarily obviously not they're both Jewish dudes from San Francisco aren't thinking about it from my perspective but you can take it in so it's just like there's this weird thing this access to something that it is work. Like, true criticism is a form of work. It's to appreciate and to appraise, but it's also that knowledge that you bring to, like, to infuse it with, you know, something that's valuable for people to do it. So, that's that's what I've hoped has been part of this show. Yeah, and it's not... It should never be dumbed down to, is it good or bad? No, never. It's there not, are plenty of movies that are just okay, but it's about how they approach their topic. Yeah. But no, I'm I'm very proud of what you've achieved, and thank you, mate. I yeah, it means a lot. It's it's been a hell of a hell of a journey. Shit, yeah. And I've real I've never regretted having to come on, and never been like oh, like it's always <laughs> been no. You know what? It's always been. I think we've had a fresh perspective on every single show we've done. So I've always had fun. And even yeah. the most recent time you, Garth, and I recorded. That was a very fun episode. <laughs> they that were went, two fun episodes. It went down some rabbit holes. It was great. So <laughs> That's what I've no. loved. Look, I wanna I wanna do this with you here. So you you know you've listened to the entire show. This is one of the elements of the final episode um, that I wanted to share. This show has its own Dominic. Chris Shahelis' son. That is Niall Schwartz's stepbrother. Yep. 
His name is Lage von Dissen. Lage is the son of a real bankrupt. Huh. Really? And Niles, in his most recent episode, shared uh, that story about having a stepbrother and how his family had this deep connection with this movie because it did actually tie in family life yep. in the life of bank robbers. Yep. And one of the great things about this show is people correspond all the time. There's like a wonderful uh, guy, Jeff Nickel, who sent me... I've watched him obsessively listen to the show, mm-hmm. like in emails mm-hmm. just over a week. He starts talking to me about something happening in episode 80. The next, like three <laughs> days later, it's 110. Three days later, it's 140. Like he's been smashing it, right? Uh, um, so it's really fun. You know, he at the moment, his, his emails are just a joy because he's like you're sending me stuff. But Laid did something absolutely stunning. He's like, you know, a successful young guy. Niles introduced him to the show. And he wrote a poem. Oh. Like, he's not a poet. No. But necessarily. Uh, uh, vocationally only. But he wrote a poem about heat. And I know that a lot of people might be listening going, like, a poem. Like, that's a, an odd thing. But I just want to tell you, like, I read it and it's absolutely stunning. And I would have totally read it in an earlier episode, but I think it it's deserves the pride of place to be in this, the final pre-credits minute. So, I'm going to read it to you, Stu. I'm going to read it to you folks listening. Uh, Lage von Dissen's poem. It's called The Lone Wolf. Eagle, globe, and anchor branded. Fates intertwined. Two men of arms. Past diverge as they extend, yet bound to intersect again. Trapped on the island of McNeil, a fortress where amends are made. Freedom found, then lost in Folsom. Four-year price, with seven paid. Gaining smarts for on the street, the captain found his loyal crew learning those tricks of the trade, submerged within a feedback loop. Released again to play the game by taking scores until the end, a stranger with a different mask was tasked to join the other men. The Raja beast was running fast, an homage to the daughter's four. With 2.11 in the air, the clock was ticking. Time to go. A charge of shape had cracked the drums for bonds that tied the crew as one. An itchy trigger finger pulled. T'was evil in its truest form. No witness left, for why the risk, though it didn't have to come to this. Enraged by all this needless death, he sought the cowboy's final breath. Distracted by those cherries flash, that beard of evil slipped away. A new distraction came about, despite the codes that hold their sway. A longing not to be alone, to feel her breath, her bodice warm, conditions of humanity, emotions push against the norm. The fence did guide the linen yonder, into the laundry to clean what's owed. But shady deals can go awry and pride can overtake the show. Into an empty phone he talked, revenge was sought, impulsive ought. Yet eyes still gazed upon a prize, metals refined, precious defined. The 5-0 prowler in the midst with dedication virtues fixed, hoping that the bomb's exotic, though cynical, not quite kicksotic. <laughs> a simple name betrayed the gang, one very common moniker. Hey, Slick, a phrase the peacock sang. Surveilled right on the monitor. Patiently waiting, sound of swine to catch the pirates in the act, but gave to Charlie their position, most contingent fact. Although the captain and his crew could feel the heat, already knew they hungered for the 12.2, a final score for dreams come true. Spotted on the 105, the hammer fully cocked, bullets spared for Java Joe, their destinies were locked. 
sharing darkness, sharing angst, recalling existential woes, content with both their lines of work, and neither willing to revert. They're apt to do what they do best, respect they'll grant, forget the rest, relations failed, they're on their own, with ultimatums set in stone. Dreams revealed their inner selves, the shadow and the darkness felt, drowning for the time he lacked, eight-ball hemorrhage staring back. They parted ways, and both were warned, surveillance gone, the hunt was on, the traitor had come back again, he tortured, killed, more blood was spilled. Guard of bodies well-informed had tipped them off, the men in blue, first commercial, Wilmington, a battle in the streets ensued. Many died that fateful day, the crew, twas all but two, gambler, leader, made it out, they knew just what to do. The man who lived among remains was banking on a chance that love and vengeance would entail the making of their plans. One was actually saved by love, she let him get away, but vengeance had prevailed indeed, the other had to stay. The psychopath had lured him back, triple tapped, the heart and cat made him gaze into his eyes, the face, the man before he dies. Abandoning his only love around the corner felt the heat, New Zealand now so far away, the chance is gone to be complete. On the tarmac, one-on-one, his shadow flooded in the black. Fatal wound, he held his hand. He ain't never gone back. That's incredible. Isn't it fucking incredible? Yeah, for someone who claims not to be a... <laughs> a claims. Writer. Yeah. I'm, well, <laughs> You've just heard that Stu's a cop. He wants he, to interrogate you last. Yeah, like... Uh, Rage, sorry. I'm just going to pick you up there. Uh, I'll take you back to where you said you weren't a... Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really special. Yeah. Really yeah. special. I think that's one that that's sort of worth getting printed off, and it would look nice here, like in a little framed. It's going to be framed in the office, and yeah, I'll take a photo a su- for that, later. That's a really sweet way to sum it all up. Like that's well, and, and again, great art can inspire great things, and I think that's it's really touching. For one far, final time, pre-credits, Stu. Thank you so much for being thank a part you. of the show. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>